Here we go. I still want to get Terry Harold's voice. Natural's not in it, baby. Stuart, it's great to hey. have you here. Hey. We're here at, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to say the date. You know, it's yeah. really hard for me, really tricky. It's January 19, 2012, and this is the January 19, 2012 edition of Virtually Speaking A to Z with Jay Ackroyd and Stuart Zeckman. Oh, I said it backwards. I almost never say it backwards. Um, Stuart, it's great to have you here. Hey. As always. Um, I, I want to start, I think, with this idea of this dog whistle thing. Um, people talk about it a lot, and, and there was a lot of talk about it um, with respect to Gingrich in the South Carolina primary trying to do whatever he was trying to do by talking about President Obama as the uh, food stamp president. Yeah. And um, and you and I actually were chatting about what we're going to talk about tonight. <laughs> we were we were arguing and we were debating and we got into like a history of the antebellum south and but more yeah. importantly we drew pictures and we drew diagrams we drew and those are so awesome Venn diagrams are the coolest thing. Man. Well, you know, and folks, you know what we mean by a Venn diagram? Of course, you mean, you you had to learn them in elementary school or something. You know, it's a it's an oval and an oval and I they, well, you know, I, I and maybe they weren't called Venn diagrams. In any case. There's a set of people and another set of people. There's a set of people who drink Diet Coke, and there's a set of people who drink bourbon, and there's some some set of people who drink bourbon and Diet Coke. And so you draw a circle, looks like an egg. I didn't learn that in school, Jay. I I don't think they mentioned the bourbon, really. (laughs) I mean, maybe the root beer and root beer floats. I mean, I don't know. But the point is, is that... The idea is that there are there are sets of people and sets of whatever, and they overlap. And the reason you draw those pictures is to illustrate that overlapping. <laughs> and when Stuart and I have gotten into our arguments about things, sometimes we resort, or I resort actually, to um, pictures to develop diagrams. It was we were riding back on the Excel from Washington one day, and we drew pictures for a solid two hours trying to figure out what we were trying to say to each other, and. And it was finally made clear to me what Stuart's been trying to say to me about dog whistles for a while, um, was trying to draw the Venn diagram of dog whistles. And, Stuart, do you, do, you, do you want to talk about what you're trying to say about why it's bad political strategy, or do you want me to try to summarize it? I, I, th- I think that there's a – I think I've found a, a really uh, decent way to make make the point that I was trying to make. So if, if you wouldn't mind, let me try – let me, you know, sort of try to make that point. That would be great, but I think if we're going to talk about uh, what New Gingrich said, um, and so sort of relate that to, to the current thing, I think we need to play this this clip of Newt Gingrich talking, not in South Carolina, but in New Hampshire, before the election in New Hampshire, saying this not to Southerners, but to a group of Northeasterners up there in in New Hampshire. Um, so. Uh, if that's cool, uh, let's let's ask Sherry, our, our producer extraordinaire. Uh, Sherry, uh, being the golden person that you are, would you mind uh, playing the clip that's entitled, um, let me see, uh, Newt <laughs> Kingrich, Obama food stamps president? That would be awesome. And if I and become if, the nominee, 
I'm going to take a very simple symbol. I'm going to, I'm going to have food stamps versus paychecks. President Obama is the most effective food stamp president in American history. No president has put more people on food stamps than Obama. Now, this is not an attack. It's a statement. It's not negative. It's a fact. I would like to be the best paycheck president in American history. We are currently on a road towards a European-style, secular, bureaucratic, socialist model that is profoundly wrong. So apparently at some point, I don't, I don't remember when he did this, but Obama goes as part of his greenness to jump in a vault, which he has helped fund, which is proof of how all of his industrial policies are working by taking your money and giving them to create cars you won't buy. Um, and so they have this picture of him getting in the car, and underneath it talks about all the vaults are being recalled, right? And I had this thought that I thought I'd share with you. It's a pity we can't recall him along with the votes. <laughs> I mean, if a defective car is bad, what about a defective president? This is what I want you to think about. If we were at 4% unemployment, a balanced budget, safety in the Middle East, I wouldn't be running. I've already done this. I was Speaker of the House. We had a wonderful time. And frankly, I had a pretty good private life, and I wasn't getting beaten up, and I wasn't having people try to embarrass me. And why, why did I, I think I had to run? Because I'm the only person in the race who's ever done this. I worked with Ronald Reagan in 1979-80 to shape an election. 537 elected people in Washington aren't all that smart. So that's, that's Newt Gingrich, and that's the context. That's the full context of what his remarks have been on this subject and using the rhetoric, food stamp president. That's what Now, I, I, I want to now introduce, I, I want to recount some of the conversation we had, actually, because what I did when I was talking to Stuart about this is I, pulled, I, I referred to a post that James Fallows had done on Atlantic where he said this is definitely dog whistling. Newt Gingrich knows exactly what he's doing in South Carolina. He's talking to people about, he's talking to racists in South Carolina. And, and to its credit, Fallows posted a series of different responses from readers. But the issue really was he's trying to say something to people in subtext. And the context that Fallows offered didn't include this. Right. Most people um, who you read or, or uh, you know, sort of come in contact with in the ways that we normally come in contact with, with the words of our opponents uh, are, are not going to have actually gone back and looked at, at, the, at the, you know, the original um, Reuters feed that came from this uh, town hall in, in New Hampshire. And to Fowell's credit, he, he, run, he ran one of the comments from a Republican and said, no, we're not talking about black people. We're talking about people who don't are taking jobs away from us. Right. And it, but if you go and you look in the liberal blogosphere and you look at, at various places where Newt's remarks are, you see uh, something that's interesting, which is you see the first part where he says, you know, the, the um, uh, most effective – food stamp president in American history, and then you see some ellipses, 
and then you see Newt Gingrich ask, be answering a question. And it's funny, I've been searching up and down, and I can't find what the question is. It's like whenever political reporters um, you know, uh, uh, put something out that a candidate says, they somehow always scrub what the question is from – from the from the thing, and it's it's really it's really aggravating. Like it's a really aggravating thing, and and so this question is where then Newt says, and if the NAACP wants to you know take issue with this, I'll I'll come down there and I'll explain to them why I think that food stamps are not as good as paychecks for African Americans. So it, it's I see that this that, that somehow slammed together, not well ellipsed together in the quotes that I've been reading uh, in the liberal blogosphere. Uh, and I, I found that odd. I think that's odd because you can see you, from getting the, the Reuters feed like how just far away those things are. One is a question, uh, question and answer in which he's you know, answering the question and then says something about the NAACP. And then one right in the beginning is this, you know, I want this to be about food stamps versus paychecks. And there's a lot of things that are really, really wrong and, and terrible uh, well, about on, what he hold says. On, hold on, hold on, because the thing he was saying was was a political thing he was saying to the crowd. The question about um, who gets food stamps is a policy issue. And well, he was saying he was going to campaign in a certain way when he said that he was going to do this, and you should vote for him he's going to campaign against the food stamp president who's failed to provide jobs. That's different from the other thing you were saying. Well, you know, I, I heard uh, Jimmy Carter on CNN today, and Jimmy Carter on CNN was explaining how he knows that this is, you know, an appeal to people who are sympathetic to segregation. And right. how that this is an old trick that, that that's used and to... to Go ahead, Jay. And that's exactly what Fallows said. Right. You know, when he said that he that Newt knows exactly what he's saying when he says in South Carolina. And and one of the things Fallows did is he wrote he posted a note, a letter, an email from someone who lives in the deep south who grew up in the north and said, It's absolutely true that yeah. these people, these racist people, hear that dog whistle. But when we were talking about this, you said, Yep. But well, let me try to put it. Let me try to put it the best I can here. And this is what I have to say about this. I think this is this is the point. I think that we we need to consider, Jay. And I think that it's been you know a number of decades now since Lee Atwater explained what you know this dog whistling was about, trying to get sympathetic you know former Dixiecrat type people. Uh, to, to to get on board. With well, that's stuff. that's not fair. What what Lee Atwater said in the famous quotation um, about what? Let's just summarize what he said. What what he was saying was he was saying you can't be ex as explicit as you were before. That doesn't work. You can't say that anymore. And he said what you have to do is use more oblique terms, and you can't be expressly racist anymore. But you nonetheless can communicate to the people you're trying to communicate to. And that's yes. what Lee Atwater was saying. And that is what he was saying. Right. Decades ago. In the talking about the Bush administration, the first Bush administration and the campaign that was run in nineteen eighty four. Yes. That's what he was saying. Right. Now, what you were saying to me when we talked about this yesterday is that Can I say it? 
please. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so what I'm saying is that in the decades since Lee Atwater's, you know, famous deal, uh, his explanation, in, in these decades, I think that uh, the Republican political machines have gotten a lot more sophisticated. I think they've had a lot more help with their messaging, help meaning people whose job it is to have, you know, to really come up with good messaging. And I think that the language that we're seeing Gingrich use is deliberate and it is the result of a lot more sophisticated messaging apparatus work and it is a definite dog whistle. But I think that Gingrich's messaging is really a dog whistle primarily at liberal Democrats. Stuart, you're butchering your argument. No, I'm making it really clearly. I'm saying that Newt's messaging is really aimed primarily at a, a huge majority of people who are not considering what liberal Democrats no. think about as important. Shut up and let me finish, Jay. And also that it's aimed at liberal Democrats primarily. It's dog-whistling liberal Democrats. It's getting liberal Democrats to jump up and down and be offended in oh. predictable ways. It I think meant that's... to accomplish those two things so that liberal Democrats discredit themselves. You're leaving out something important that you said to me yesterday. Oh, the minuscule amount of people who actually are pro-segregationists who it also appeals to, the, incidentally? The point that okay. when Newt says that to what people talked about when they're talking about the Western Pennsylvanian people in 2008 who are going to vote for Hillary and not for Obama, when they talked about the population for whom this message was aimed at. And what you said to me, actually, was you said this message says jobs to people. You said that to people who aren't racist, that, and there are many more of them. When we do the Venn diagram, we draw a small circle of right. racists for whom this was a dog whistle. And we yep. drew a great big circle that contained that small right. circle and said that's people who feel like their jobs are at risk. And when Newt says that the money's going to food stamps instead of to jobs. He's talking to that larger group of people. Now, that is different from, and, and that's the message that I think matters more than getting liberals to go chasing after the barking up, barking up the racist tree is less important than his communicating to the people you say he was speaking to in New Hampshire, right? Right. That's your I, argument. He was speaking to no, people in Yes, I, I am, but but then and 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 then I made another argument. You remember, and I was trying to say it, and then you said, "Oh, right," and it's bad strategically. That's also your point. And I realized, well, that's not, ex and I think I said to you, that's not exactly what I'm trying to get at. And we kind of had, we then we went off into, you know, like an examination of Reconstruction, as we sometimes like get off the topic and go yeah, into and, wild and, stuff. An hour later, but so so what I, so what I was really trying to say also is that. It's really, really effective because it speaks to, as you just said, a huge amount of people who are really concerned and focused on jobs. 
and and draws this big contrast and and cites this fact: there are 50 million people on food stamps when there were you know 25 million of them you know four years before, mm-hmm. and now the the Obama you know presidency and the Democrats the National Democrats and and these these people what they care about. And their philosophy is, well, to solve the economic problems, what we'll do is we'll hand out more food stamps. We won't make an economy that creates more jobs. We don't really care about that. What we will do is is try to make you know food stamps be the the savior of this as opposed to jobs. And that's the parody the Republicans at Newt is running. And that parody appeals to a much larger collection of the population than merely the racists who think that lazy, shiftless people are the people who get food stamps. Right. So it is a dog whistle, but it's also an appeal to a broader population that doesn't hear the dog whistle. It's a massive appeal to lots of people who don't hear that dog whistle. And if liberal Democrats, this is also like a kind of really important point of why I think Newt chooses the language he does and why the message shops that supply him with that language are are what that strategy is. When liberal Democrats react predictably – Inevitably, to what well, obviously to them, what they did, their the reaction they made, what they said was they said it was a dog whistle. Jimmy Not- Carter, right? Like, is going to be predictably going to come out, and based on what he's heard about it through the filter that eventually gets to him, because he probably wasn't, you know, watching the Reuters feed and seeing that. But when it finally gets to him, he'll predictably use that voice and come out and say something that he's been saying for decades. Right. And the thing is, is this a 20% or the 30% or the 10% or whatever fraction it is of the total collection of people who hear the dog whistle, um, there's a much larger number that hear something else. They hear and, Newt Gingrich saying, your jobs are at risk. And when liberal Democrats... Try to change exactly. the subject by hearing that dog whistle that I think is, in my opinion, intended for us, and do the predictable thing. They've got us because then we're jumping up and down about what somebody said. We're perfectly deniable. Hold on. Hold on. We're calling. Say that there's 80% of the people aren't racist who really are worried about their jobs and hear. Poll after poll, right? And 20% are racist. Now, you know th- that 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 Venn diagram is really a problem because you know it's it's fuzzy that circle around the 20%. But when Democrats jump up and say you're being racist, they're calling 80% or 70% or some fraction of the people who are upset about this. They're calling them racist. Right. And that's exactly what happened when we were in our pie fights back in the uh, primary campaigns. Hillary right. supporters were called – people were calling Hillary supporters racist. Right. Andrew Cuomo got on the radio in New York, in upstate New York, and said the words shuck and jive, and that became like a problem. Like that became a dog whistle. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton said something about Bobby Kennedy running in June of, you know, 60-whatever – and suddenly, that became a huge subtext thing. Yeah, I, I remember that very clearly. We're really good at it. We're so predictable at responding to these things in a way in which we scream, that's a dog whistle, and here's what's really wrong, and try to change the subject. Right. 
and change the subject away from the real issue, which is that, no, in fact, we do need four food stamps because people don't have jobs. <laughs> That's the real issue. Right. And, and do so in a way that makes us paint ourselves, if we're predictable like this, as people who are not concerned about the jobs part of that exactly. and the paychecks part of that. And that what we're concerned about, that's why he gets to say at the Newt Gingrich gets to say at the end of it, uh, only elites, you know, despise people making money. That's this is how we help Newt Gingrich parody us. Now, um, I guess uh, uh, I think parody is the wrong word. Caricature, I don't know, but but yeah. Well, discredit us. Discredit us. Discredit us. Yes, as not being serious and not being really committed to what real working people are concerned about. Right. And so that was my big point about this, is that when we think about these things, I think it's important for us to really think about what, how we're reacting. And if, we're re- and, and if it gives us moral you know, sort of satisfaction to, to, to be able to go, no, he's doing something bad, and those are bad people, we have to remember that we're doing exactly what they expect us to do. And we have to ask ourselves, is this effective? Are we doing anything? Is this helping? You know, and and maybe we have to consider that that it it may even be sophisticated enough to be aimed also at us to get this reaction. Right. And, and so you when know. you said earlier, barking up our tree, what they're trying to do is elicit a reaction from us that reinforces the idea in the eighty percent who really aren't racist but are responding to the idea that their jobs are at risk, and they're seeing the Democrats as rushing to defend um, a, subset of the, a subset of that group at the expense of the other part of that group. They're trying to create division within the Democratic Party. They're trying to make the Democrats appear, liberal Democrats, appear as if we don't really care, care about, about people having work. Right. We care about something else other than people having work and people having jobs. That's how they portray us. And when we say, you're being a crazy racist, we reinforce that in the minds of people who aren't crazy racist but are worried about their jobs. And who don't hear it, who honestly don't hear anything like that, right. who say the, uh, uh, the most effective food stamp president versus I want to be the best paycheck president, and don't hear anything at all, nothing like that, because they're, they're not focused on, on racial stereotypes. Well, and, and that's on and their own and, lives. And because Newt's not an idiot, he doesn't use the dog whistle in New Hampshire. When he talks about it in New Hampshire, he puts it in full context. And that's the same context that the uh, person, the Republican, wrote into Fallows, saying Fallows is being dishonest, put it into. He said, no, that's not what we're talking about at all. You know, you know, you can say you hear that, but you're making it up. Because Fallows fell into the trap, and because Jimmy Carter fell into the trap, and because we always seem to fall into this trap, and it's 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 bad for us, and I think we I think we need to really maybe rethink this. And so, it, uh, rather than sort of talk about how right we are, and we're right, and how morally correct we are, and how bad the Republicans have been in the past, and how they really are like doing the Southern strategy over and over and over again, instead of really sort of focusing on the things that sort of make us feel good to say, let's think about what's effective and what's actually really happening, and let's maybe, you know, address the issues, address the actual argument, address whether or not work is going to be created from, you know, Newt's plan to make, you know, children 
<laughs> you know, you know, or or we could get into Joe Klein versus you know we could get, yeah. but you know, but, the, but address the substance of it as opposed to uh, do what we always do, and what what's at this point I think like decades worth of predictable. We got a caller, yep. and um, we'll take that to the bottom of the hour, and then we'll go to um, Digby. So sounds good. Is Tudor Magic busy there? Hi. Yep, I'm here. How are oh, you? Great. So great to talk to you finally, man. It's our it's our centrist. It's it's uh it's it's biz. Hey man, great to talk to you. Go. Good talking to you guys too. Uh I wanted to speak from kind of an old fogey perspective. I remember uh Lee Atwater's comment and I wanted to remind you guys both that Frank Luntz is the successor, if you will, to the throne of Lee Atwater. Indeed. Because because he said words matter. And and as Jay noted, um Gingrich is not an idiot. He does he does address his audience wherever it may be in their terms. And that's part of being an affected an effective candidate because if you're telling the audience what it wants to hear, it's more likely to vote for you. Sure. 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 That, sure. And that's what he's doing. And and you know, part of the point that Stuart's making is that he changes that message in South Carolina from what he says in New Hampshire. No, I'm right. not. He, he doesn't change. No, don't, I can't oh. believe you're restating that in, incorrectly. No, I'm not <laughs> saying he's restating it. I, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying he's changing his message. It's the same message. The ones that the, the one that, that got that South Carolina audience. I watched the debate. I saw the debate to stand up and applaud in in a, in in, uh, in unison to give a standing ovation. Wasn't that it was substantially different at all, whatsoever. Okay. He, he but what what he did do was he he did actually address it to um, sort of uh, 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 sort of talk to the way that Southerners feel stereotyped. Yeah. Southerners don't like, you know, people from South Carolina don't like that people around the country think they're these racist rednecks. And so what, you know, what Newt Gingrich did is he sort of turned it around. He, he, he made them feel like they were the ones who had a stereotype to overcome. And that it was this pronouncement upon them that 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 the question being asked, well, isn't that insensitive? Doesn't that say something about you? Doesn't it say something that you would use this kind of language, Newt? He made the audience sympathetic to the idea. No, it doesn't. We're not this stere- this racist redneck stereotype. Will you stop? And that's what they were really applauding. I think that's that's what okay. I saw in that. And so and so yes, he did tailor his message, but it wasn't on this. It wasn't on the substance of it. Is, and there's, is, is, I guess, my, my point. Okay. Thank and you, there's, there's just one other thing I wanted to, I wanted to um, question about. Um, when, when you guys are, are talking about, about the food stamp issue, okay? Yeah. You there? Okay. Yeah. Um, when you guys are talking about the food stamp issue, I'm going to ask you both, and I think the candidates should also be asked this, have you ever been on food stamps and had to eat using the food stamp budget and limitations? Okay. Uh, no, I haven't. 
Um, no, he's, he's saying that should that be a part of the conversation? Like, shouldn't 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 if we if if they're saying food stamp president, like, shouldn't the response be something like, yeah, what do you know about that? Right. You know. Right. No, what do you no. what do you freaking know about that, Newt Gingrich? You elite scum. You know, you you freaking lobbyist. You know. Yeah. You know, so, I, am I am I phrasing that correctly, Biz? Uh, he's he. Hold on. He, he's he's been muted. Hold on. I've All been right. on food. I've been on food stamps. Okay. It is not easy. It is not. It is not a, a glorious handout. It is a subsistence. Okay. Right. And yep. and the conservatives need to understand what the word what the word compassion actually means relative to jobs versus food stamps. And I think you nailed it earlier, Stuart. At the well, opening I, at the opening of the ch- of the dialogue between you and Jay as to as to they don't understand that in most cases people would rather be working they would they would absolutely rather be working than have to live you know hand to mouth with a small government subsistence yes but let me also just say that that is the point that gingrich is making also gingrich is saying that if you put it to the american people you put it to anybody here Everybody wants a paycheck. They don't want food stamps. They don't want to live that way. And what they what they really want is a solution to the to the economic problems we face, to the depression we're going through, that actually involves job creation. And that's what he's saying. Um, but in any case, I really appreciate you calling in and you know uh, and, and and helping and adding to this conversation. It's really cool to hear from you, Biz. Finally, he's a longtime studio audience member. And uh, I guess we're we're going to go to the uh, announcements at the at the half and yes, Sherry, are you ready with us? Oh. And uh, we got some dead air. Maybe not. We got some dead air. Um, I guess she's well, probably uh, our, our wonderful producer is, is probably actually saying nice things to uh, Biz as, as we speak, saying thanks so yeah. much for calling. No, oh, hello. That's really awesome. Hello, I think I'm here. Okay, yes, you are. Go ahead. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yes, we thank can. you. Okay. <laughs> so following A to Z tonight, Matt Stiller comes by to talk with Jay. And then on Sunday, Joan McCarter comes by to talk with Jay. On Tuesday, we have Dave Johnson and Barry Kendall, who's the executive director at the Progressive Ideas Network. And right now in Washington, D.C., where he has organized a delegation of progressives to go to the Progressive Caucus on the Hill. Then on Wednesday, Tom Levinson returns for Virtually Speaking Science. His guest this week is Alan Lightman, who has a new book coming out, Mr. G, The Story of Creation as Told by God. And finally, next Thursday, Jay's guest is Olivier Knox. So back to you. Wow. Back to the lineup. Big coming up. In his latest column, Dana Milbank of the Washington Post criticizes pro-choice activists for raising a false alarm about the threat to reproductive rights in this country. 
He cites the events that will take place on both sides of the debate over the next week as the country marks the landmark Roe v. Wade decision that made abortion legal in this country. All of this attention troubles Dana Milbank. He writes, If these groups cared as much about the issue as they claim and didn't have such strong financial incentives to avoid consensus and compromise, they'd cancel these carnivals and get to work on the one thing everybody agrees would be worthwhile, reducing unwanted pregnancies. He chastises the choice movement by telling us that not every compromise means a slippery slope to the back alley. He tells us to stop with the sky is falling argument and to acknowledge that the majority of Americans have legitimate concerns. I guess Dana Milbank hasn't heard about GOP presidential candidate Rick Santorum's edicts against birth control. It makes sex all about pleasure, you see, and we can't have that. Neither has he bothered to educate himself about the anti-choice movement's first principle, the overturning of Roe and Griswold, the case that is the basis of the uh, legalization of birth control, and handing both issues back to the states. That way, women will have to fight for their personal autonomy on 50 fronts instead of one. But then Dana Milbank probably thinks that's okay, too. After all, it's not his problem. Here's what this is all about from my friend, pro-choice activist Deborah Cooper. Quote, There's a theory called the prime mover, the first action of the first cause. Well, for women, it is reproductive rights. It precedes everything. Without the ability to control your own body, then you are a slave to everything else. Frankly, sexism, the need to control women's lives, is endemic to any social structure. It is ever enduring, and even when it seems to be quashed, it returns in another form. That is the story in the modern era of women's rights. In the epilogue of Corey Robbins' book, The Reactionary Mind, he makes a point of saying that the loss of power and control is what the elite and the reactionary fear the most. More than a specific loss itself, they fear the rising volcano of submerged anger and power. And for them, that is most acutely felt in the private realm. It is why they want to control women, and controlling their reproductive lives is the surefire way to accomplishment. accomplish it. It is why abortion rights are absolutely central to every other kind of freedom, unquote. Corey Robin characterizes the typical reactionary response this way. Seed the field of the public if you must. Stand fast in the private. Allow men and women to become democratic citizens of the state, but make sure they remain feudal subjects in the family, the factory, and the field. In the end, tyrants and autocrats will preserve their private regimes of power above all else, and women are the first ones to feel the chains tightening and sound the alarm. Such things will never worry privileged elites like Dana Milbank, but they should worry everyone else. All right. Um, do you have any first reactions to that, Jay? Or... Yeah, well, sorry, I'm having trouble with my mute button. So uh, my, my first reaction to that was to say... That no, my first reaction to that was to say that you know the very first thing I said ten years ago when I first put a post up in commentary at Talking Points Memo was that you know these these women activists, the feminists, the, the narrow, they're crazy. They're they're screwing up. What they should be doing is they should be making it very clear that this is not about abortion. It's about women's reproductive choices that they really not only don't want women to be able to decide when they want to have an abortion, they also don't want women to be able to use contraceptives. And that if they, instead of, if if their legislative strategy was to create a compromise 
argument where they said, okay, well, let's just concede that the third trimester should be out of bounds and up to every state to determine in return for, you know, condoms in every pew. How about that as a deal? Um, that's my first reaction to that is that, and it turned out that that's, that now we're really talking about them explicitly saying they don't want men to have contraception either. Um, was that the reaction you wanted me to have? Probably. Uh, no, I mean, like, I wanted to know. Uh, I guess... I mean, they're being explicit about they're really trying to deny not merely abortion, but really trying to deny women the decisions that they that they can make about running their reproductive lives. They're being very explicit about that in a way they weren't 10 years ago. Uh, I guess, I mean, I, I agree with 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 a lot of, of, of what Digby said, and I agree a, a lot with of what you just said in reaction to it. And I guess I have a couple of, of thoughts. Uh, number one, my first reaction... Uh, w- was um, to think to myself, "Mad bitch, dear." I mean, that was that was my first <laughs> reaction. You have Honestly, to that people won't remember. Okay, all right. Um, so, so there was there's a really ill-fated um, Dana Milbank, Washington Post, uh, you know, little web thing with Chris Eliza called Mouthpiece Theater. Uh, that just was so just embarrassingly bad and horrendous. And, and smoking jackets with, you know, glasses of something or other, glasses of cognac or something. And, and so this was, you know, like forever ago in, in the old, old times uh, of the Old Testament and the 2007 primary campaign. And, uh, and during this, uh, you know, they, they had a, a, a joke going in which Dana Milbank said uh, that, that Hillary's campaign was comparable to Mad Bitch Beer. You know, it, it was just so dumb and so so idiotic and so Versailles and so decadent and, and just you know, intellectually Stuart, corrupt. Stuart, I have to interrupt. Um, I was walking down Lexington Avenue to the subway station today, uh-huh. and there was a box, a newspaper box. You know, like the reg- I don't know if you know what I mean, folks, but here in the city, in most cities, there's a newspaper box, and you can either most of them are you pay money, but sometimes they're free. And in my on this block in Lexington Avenue, there was a Politico newspaper box. Wow! And I opened it up, and it was free. I took this Politico newspaper with me. I, I have it nearby, um, but I don't have it right nearby. But I have it not so far away. And it was a really amazing thing to have a Politico the political paper in hard copy. And the political paper in hard copy is what Dana Milbanks is about. Um, it's the village just absolutely person- absolutely put into the clearest freaking physical terms. And that's what Dana Milbank is. He's the village. Right. And so when Digby points to the intellectual decadence of Dana Milbank and what Dana Milbank represents and what the post-partisan, that's what they call it at the Washington Post, post-partisan section of, of that newspaper and the people who, who write for it and their worldview, the creeping Dowdism, Maureen Dowd's, you know, just psych, psychosis um, combined with, with their general, you know, decadence is, is just, it's just mind-blowing. It's just mind-blowing, and it's disgusting, and it needs to be uh, said as much. It needs, it needs to be said that we, as, as Americans, don't deserve the kind of press corps that we're getting. We don't deserve Dana Milbank. We don't deserve their bored, jaded, 
uh, affectations. We don't deserve that Versailles, and it's and it's wrong, and and, and we we need to denounce and reject it. So so yeah, that that's that's the first thing is mad bitch beer. That pretty much says it all about Dana Milbank and whatever the crap he writes about. But my second sort of reaction to it is to recall that I guess we didn't hear it because we didn't hear the Z files. Um, on Tuesday because of technical difficulties. But I pointed out in the Z files on Tuesday um, that just a month ago, uh, the, the, there was a headline, Obama administration refuses to relax plan B restrictions. And, you know, that we're, there's, there's we're, a, what did we said on that, you know, up on our, up on the video on the J Ackroyd videos, YouTube video stream where Digby talks about exactly that. So, so here you have the Obama administration pre- preventing, making safe and effective birth science-based, control. you know, birth control uh, unavailable proactively, and and so in this in in the article uh, at at the at the Wapo, uh, the news of this, they got the reaction of Susan F. Wood of George Washington University, who resigned from the FDA in 2005 because of delays by the George W. Bush administration in relaxing restrictions on Plan B. And she said she was, quote-unquote, beyond stunned by this decision. She says, I'm quoting, there is no rationale that can justify HHS, uh, Health and Human Services, Obama administration, reaching in and overturning the FDA on the decision about this safe and effective cons- contraception. She right. says, FDA, I never thought I'd see this happen again. The FDA had already ruled it was safe and effective and perfectly fine for over-the-counter treatment for teenage, teenage women, for, young, for teenagers to receive this, this contraception. So when we talk about like the real villains in this piece, and we talk about the right, and we talk about Santorum moving, you know, uh, uh, the, the the goalposts to contraception now, and we can actually see that it's not just the reactionary mind of Corey Robin and his theories playing out. We can actually see a lot of things playing out, and those things that are playing out have a lot to do with. Um, you know things like why the Obama administration would go ahead and do this in an election year, and I also think it has to do with how um, liberal Democrats talk about this. And well, and we just saw the story today. Just no, I'm sorry, it was yesterday when they said, "Oh, by the way, liberals, you're going to be unhappy with the budget." Yeah, I brought that up in in the Z files too. Yeah. Um, but but, but we, you, you're, it's a good thing you've decided you're going to vote for Obama. No matter already. what, because <laughs> because you're going to be unhappy with the budget that we're designing to appeal to um, the independents, who, who it happens, David Atkins pointed out, aren't paying any fucking attention to this. Yeah, I, I think we should be the undecided people. I've said that many times. But I also think that there's, um, there's a way in which we talk about uh, these things that is also predictable um, and is not... Um, necessarily useful and it makes us feel really good to say things like this is about the you know suppression of women but i don't think that's uh i don't think taking sort of theoretical uh, approaches and injecting them into this is, is necessarily that clarifying and what do you mean by theoretical well the theory that you know this is all about patriarchy and that um 
you know, you know it's it funny. goes back it's to funny. the you know beginning of time and the suppression. You know, like I, I don't think that it's funny after after I after I recorded that I said, oh, Digby, you're gonna you're gonna set Stuart off on this. Well, I, and I think we should hold the patriarchy one for a different show. Yeah, I don't I don't think we need to get into that. But here's what I really think we what what I reacted to and what I I, I really wish we were we were talking about as liberal Democrats. It's about privacy. Now, now Digby got to it when she said. You know Griswold versus Connecticut. So everybody who doesn't know, it's a freaking, really landmark, gigantic decision. Because and, I think, and let's just run through it really quickly. 1965 in Griswold versus State of Connecticut, it was determined that people could get condoms if they wanted to. It was yeah. condoms we were talking about. Yeah, <laughs> and that that was based on a, a, a right of privacy that people should be able to, right. if they want to buy a condom, they should be able to buy a condom without the government being able to say, no, you can't buy a condom. Honest to God, 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut. So when people sort of, uh, when we liberal Democrats, when we talk about this and we start talking about women, it's a female thing, it's women's issues, it's it's about women, it's about, about the suppression of women, we're sort of... Um, putting it into very familiar territory and we're putting it into territory that allows us to sort of feel like we're crusading for oppressed people and that we're, we're doing something that's morally wonderful for ourselves. But we're actually sort of taking our eye, in my, in my opinion, like away from the fact that it's for all Americans. Taking it's, off the ball, if you will. Taking the well, eye off the freedom ball. Uh, off of the fact that that Griswold was really important, not because it did anything about you know choice. What it did was it it really codified into into case law the beautiful truth that is true and that liberals know is true that we individuals have a right to privacy and that that fact is enshrined in the Constitution and that the Constitution of our country, the, the, the basis of our society is that we have a human right of privacy, that we are autonomous, that we are individuals, that we are, are free, that privacy means freedom. And, and, and I think that's something that all kinds of Americans can, can relate to. All kinds of Americans who haven't necessarily made up their minds about lots of stuff can relate to the idea of being free and and of having privacy. <laughs> free to choose, you mean? <laughs> yeah. But free I, to choose what they're going to do. With, I'm sorry, that's the title of a Milton Friedman book. Um, free to choose is a libertarian treatise by Milton Friedman. But Free to choose is actually what is what Griswold is about. Free to choose whether or not you want to have a child, whether or not you want to make sure you're not going to have a child um, when you're having sex, and that's a pretty simple choice. And when, it seems when, like one the state shouldn't be dictating. Of course, and it's it's it, it, it's it's so obvious that anybody who's not no people who haven't been paying attention, people who haven't been you know thinking about it that much can see it pretty obviously. But when we take this and we talk about it in this way that we tend to talk about it and have talked about it for decades, decades in which we've been losing really badly public opinion about this, when we talk about it in terms of, well, this is women, this is a right of women, um, I think that what happens is that having predicted this and strategized against this with message shops for decades also, rightists, the right wing, pull out um, uh, women. 
they pull out right-wing women. They pull out conservative women for America. They pull out women, and, and all of a sudden, there's this huge group of women who are saying, no, it's not a women's issue at all. It's about um, that, you know, this is murder. Well, well, Caitlin Flanagan actually is a good example of someone who – never mind. The point is, is that this is about people. It's not about women. And well, I, I know that, and and I, I think that's true, and I think that Digby knows that, and every every oh, well, we all know that. that it's about people, and you know that's that's what Planned Parenthood would tell you. I mean, you know what Planned Parenthood would tell you is that you know couples come down and decide for themselves what they want to do. That this is about people. This is about people making their own choices, but that nonetheless, it's the case that women own their own bodies. So, of course. Yeah, well, sure, but you know what? It's primarily about freedom, and then if you start to talk about it in terms of, well, this is a, a measure of the quality of women, the right wing will just do what they always do, which is to get people on the air who are women who will say, uh, no, it isn't, and why are you talking for all women? And why are these feminists getting up and talking about things as if they're the only women and we're, and all the rest of us aren't out here? Who are these elite feminists, and why do they why do they – you know, despise you, and why do they, you know, and then it becomes all about that kind of argument. And I think until you actually have some kind of, like, unanimity of some kind across the XX gender, um, you're going to get that. Well, you know? but you're talking tactic now. You're not talking principle. Well, I think that it's... Because the principle is clear. People should be left alone. I think that the clear principle is privacy and freedom. I think where it gets less and less and less clear is where it's about um, uh, patriarchy and that the system of patriarchy's role in the political economy and oppression and history. Well, but that doesn't enter into that doesn't enter into the Griswold argument. Doesn't enter into the Roe v. Wade argument. It doesn't enter into People nope. being able to decide their reproductive lives for themselves. No, no. The, the mechanisms by which those reproductive decisions have been denied may tie back to the feminist arguments about patriarchy, but the base argument is absolutely clear. Right. I and mean, people should be able to run their lives the way they want to, have children if they want to, and have them when they want to. Of and, course. And that's not in dispute, and that doesn't require any kind of superstructure of patriarchal argument. I mean, people should be able to run their lives the way they want to, their personal lives, certainly, the way they want to, and their reproductive lives the way they want to. And that seems, un that seems to be something that's very difficult to argue with, yet nonetheless, and, you know, Stuart, you, you are good at internalizing and then representing conservative arguments. What's the conservative response to say to someone who says, look, I just want to have my kid when I'm 24 and married. I don't want to be pregnant when I'm 19, but I don't want to have to not have sex until I'm 24 because I don't have a kid until I'm 24. I mean, what does the conservative say to that? The, the conservative argument against that when – when we're talking about really, you know, honesty and we're not talking about the, you know, the Republican Party and their dishonesty, the honest conservative argument against that, uh, as far as, as I can understand it from reading is, uh, and talking, is uh, things were better uh, in the past. You mean when, when, in, when women got married at 19 to men at 21? 
I mean, because that's what you have to say. You have to say that, and they were pregnant before they got married. I mean, that's the real Leave it to Beaver generation story is you got her pregnant and you married her. They're saying that they're, the conservative argument against this is that there are all kinds of unintended consequences from losing sight of the basic morality that we uh, uh, hold dear as a society and that the elevation of, uh, you know, the, these other concerns of, uh, have, have really made us much worse and will continue to have unintended consequences and will continue to be bad. And ultimately, people won't recognize their society anymore, and ultimately all the good things that we know and we hold dear, like, you know, mothers caring about children, that's just going to go away and be lost forever, and it's too important. It's too um, uh, crucial, and, and it actually explains our success as a, as a nation. Um, that, that we know these things so deeply that even liberal Democrats with their levers and huge state power can't take it away from us. So that's, that's, the, that's the argument that they have. And, and, and therefore, women shouldn't be able to make to, decisions about their own damn lives right. and not have any privacy. And yes, the, the outcome of that is like, you know, the cops can knock on your door. Can we, can we see your reproductive organs now? We have to make sure uh, a murder didn't take place here. Well, but, 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 but Stuart, now, now it doesn't sound coherent. Now it sounds like they're just crazy. And your claim is they're it is. crazy. My, I think that, uh, that, that Rick Santorum is making uh, uh, arguments that are crazy because of their extremity. They, it means that their, their application would result in a significantly worse um, world for everybody. Um, it's, it's so bad for everybody. And yet, the, and yet he can't see that. And he can't see that, not because he's crazy. Well, what, let's, let's, let's take Rick Santorum away for a second. You're saying that people who, who believe in that point of view, and we're talking about maybe 20, 25% of the electorate, um, really, really think this is true? Think that things were better before in some time in the idealized past? Whoa, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. Idealized past or in the past? Um, I would say idealized. So I'd say so. So let's be neutral about it. In the past, yeah, they say they say that things are getting worse, and that morality uh, and immorality, uh, the, the the advance of immorality and the defeat of morality is pervasive and getting worse. Yeah, and immorality is doing things like Newt Gingrich did, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> like politicians do is what they say, which is why you can't trust them with your money, right? Um, but you, okay, all right. <laughs> you know, I'm, well, I'm having a coherent uh, But 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 they would say, and in fact, Mitt Romney would say that he is someone who adheres to this. Yes. Now, Mitt, Mitt Romney would, would would say that that he was a virgin before he got married. He married his wife. He's had one wife. He's raised a family. That family has consisted of a bunch of virgins who married other virgins, and they've had children. And they are really. I mean, it's really interesting because, of course, the. The, the riff against Romney is that he's not conservative enough, but he does the family values thing better than uh, pretty much all the other guys do. Well, the, the thing is we have to really understand that not, we have to not caricature the, these people. We have to really understand them so that we can defeat them. Um, and, and they, they, they don't, we keep accusing them of hypocrisy in, in this respect. And, 
they don't see it. Conservatives don't see uh, perfection as you know as as reasonable. They don't. They don't they're not holding themselves up as and, and and ordinary people as perfect. They're not saying that people won't go ahead and do immoral things according to them, like have sex before marriage. But they are saying that we ought to teach and try to promote and try to overcome this immorality, this you know this sinfulness of humans. Well, they also believe in redemption. Yeah. That, so that Newt yeah. can redeem himself yes. by saying that I did wrong. He can confess his sins uh, and and get good with the Lord. So yeah, people people believe those things, and it's it's not incoherent or crazy. It's that when uh, certain ideas are adhered to exclusively and without consideration for the real world, um, you get craziness. Like, for example, you know, Mao, Maoists getting craziness. It's, it's, not, it's not that they're not thinking clearly. It's that they're thinking about only a limited subset of things. And they're focusing on them to the exclusion of empirical evidence to the contrary or anything else. Um, but it also means that, that they're just, you know, denying kind of fundamental American principles about yes. freedom and privacy, Absolutely. for example. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like it's it by trying to understand these things, Jay. By trying to really re, sort of think about them and discuss them clearly and cogently and without pejoratives, um, to the extent we can, it helps us better understand them. The guys who are stupid and ignorant and faith-based who are kicking our asses all over the place and have <laughs> been for decades. And that's the idea: is to defeat them. We're not saying. Oh well, you know, if we consider these things, then they may be correct. And so, oh my God, what's wrong? Are we sure anymore? We're, we're sure in our principles. We understand what, what what we're about, but it's important to understand what they're about in order to thoroughly discredit them, because we're not discrediting them. And so, I think that we need to look at ways of doing so effectively. And it's not just a strategic thing, as you said before. You know, you're totally right. The first principle is freedom. Of liberals, we, we're, right. you know, privacy isn't just a woman's issue. It's ours. It's, well, remember, Chris Wald was about condoms. Condoms, <laughs> of course. Right. So, to, so I, I think that that's important. Um, Jay, what, what do you think? What, what should? How should we be talking about this? Like, well, how should we be freaking discussing it? Well, I, I think that the points that you've been making to me privately and here is that we have to understand the enemy. Yeah. And and the idea that we are going to feel proud of ourselves for making fun of them for being stupid means that we're not understanding them as well as we should. And so understanding them is an important part of it. Now, then again, I read Bobo and I have no idea. <laughs> Remember, he, he writes for the New York Times. So he's a conservative who writes for the New York Times. Well, he, think about the quote-unquote liberals who write for the New York Times. Well, it's Chris like Scott Tom today. Friedman. No, no, no. Chris right. Scott. So Chris you Scott can't really. Disaster. Um, I'm not seeing Stoller here, and we're coming up on a minute to go. So I'm assuming that Matt will call in. So we're going to keep rolling with um, Stuart and myself. Okay. Um, and so. I want to go on about this a little bit longer. And then, assuming that Stoller shows up, we'll go to Stoller, but if he doesn't, we'll just keep going on. I have a couple more things on my list of stuff to talk about. Well, that's totally, totally, totally right. That makes complete sense. So, if Stoller is bailed on us, we're good. 
I hope not. I was looking forward to listening to that. But anyway, go well, ahead. I, I, have a, I have a lot to say to Stoller. Um, but the point is, is that you know we need to hold our core values, and our core values really are freedom, and really our privacy, and really are doing what's best for the country and doing what's best for Americans. Have you noticed that like liberal Democrats seem to have a weird aversion to the word freedom? Like yes, some I, of them. I've started you to notice that? that. Yeah, I mean, yes, it was this. The stuff I want to talk about, let's talk to Stoller about, um, really brought it out is that is, is that freedom isn't doesn't seem to be a core value. It's the same way that capitalism makes people nervous too, and I, I'm getting a little freaked out about that too because I didn't realize that 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 there are a lot of liberals who didn't weren't comfortable with the word capitalism, and that's because I think the capitalism's become synonymous with um, stuff robber barons with feudalism actually. I mean, stealing from stealing from Marcy, because Marcy's talked about neo-feudalism and just talking about you know the systematic exploitation of the peasant class of the people in the bottom 50 percent, both on both sides of the marketplace and on both the wage side and on the uh, consumer side. Well, and she's and she's recognizing something really important about this new way of conducting the economy in which. Uh, just about every everything is commodified and turned into an in, essentially a stream of money that right. can be predictable. And, and so there's instead of buying a car, you're getting a loan to buy a car, and then there's a stream of money attached to that loan, a stream of predictable payments, which then can be securitized and sold as like a security in a financial market. The same thing with your cable bill. You you get cable, you sign up. The same thing with your phones. You're now signing two year contracts in America with your phones and so your mobile phone well, and, and, and your securitizable, you know, and your income time gets your bank account with an automatic payment feature. Right. So now we're talking about something that's just like the one of those loans that, you know, blew up the economy, right? One of those loans that got packaged in with the other loans and that what made securities out of and they got sold on a on a finan financial markets. So um so Marcy's also making that point about how we're all becoming these sort of vehicles for um financial products. And every every sort of every uh choice we're we're making we're confronted with has to do with getting a, a stream of income going to a monopoly. You know, or monopolists or oligopoly, and then having that be sold as financial, you know, uh, uh, products to and insured, embedded on in the great casinos, and how that's that's really sort of the, the servitude of all of this is is tying us to a continual income stream to that financial mill. Um, hey, what's up? Are you with us? Hey, Matt. Great to have you with us. We're trying to transitioning over because we're talking about um, Marcy Wheeler's. Um, description of the American economy is moving the neo-feudalism, and I'm here with Stuart Zeckman as we do that. Or how are you doing? Tonight? Oh, that's really cool. Well, Hello? do you have a comment about that? About that? About that? About that description? Because what Stuart yeah, was just can... saying is, that... go on. Well, yeah, no, I mean it's 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 absolutely it's kind of it's absolutely right. You know, I mean that ripping out all civil institutions that have any impact, you know, that can allow citizens to have any impact on a on our democracy and destroying educational institutions so that citizens can't be educated, so they get disempowered. It's all about creating a neo-feudal culture. And, and by feudal, you mean what? I know uh, what I think, uh, Marcy. This, what it, do you think, Marcy? It, it just sounded good. It sounded good. <laughs> you use big words, you know. Um, 
No, you know, it's it's um, it's about creating social relationships between um, the people who who run a society and the people who are part of that society, and those relationships are based on uh, dominance and and power, um, and instead of of any sense of of consent, um, and that's. You know, there's there's a lack of social mobility that's implied there. There's a huge asymmetry of education. There's an asymmetry of nutrition, um, asymmetry of information, uh, and so on and so forth, to the point where, where there is no such thing as citizenship. There's just sort of serfdom and aristocracy. Right. And what Stuart was just saying is that the um, the different agencies of commerce are converting what were you know, one time purchases into streams of income that can be that can be uh securitized. securitized. That's right. Um okay, well I'm here with Matt Stoller who um posts at Naked Capital. He's a fellow at the Rockefeller Institute, a former um a former a senior aide. They're only senior aides you've you've written, right Matt? Right. There right. Are no it's, it's a, a Lake Wolf theory of Congress. Um, it's actually um, the uh, Roosevelt so, Institute, not the Rockefeller Institute. I, I, did I say Rockefeller? I'm so sorry. The Roosevelt yeah. Institute. I'm sorry. I, I just right. got that 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 book about medical about Medicare. If I'm Christian, I get mixed up. Um, yeah. But in any case, but the Rockefeller Institute Roosevelt was cool. Yeah, I, and I'm sorry for making that mistake, and thank you for correcting me. And what what we wanted to talk about tonight with Matt is um, the the writing he sent over at Naked Capitalism. There are um, four different posts that you should check out. If you just um, do a search on that, you'll find them. Um, and in those posts, he talks about, um, about the nature of, of government right now and what he learned as a staffer for Alan Grayson in Congress uh, when he was working on trying to develop more transparency in the Federal Reserve. Is that a fair characterization, Matt? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, sorry, go on. No, no, please go on. Well, and, and the thing is, is that what I did, I, I really, I, I read those carefully, but I really understood things a lot better when I listened to an interview I did with um, with um, with Matthew Filippowitz on 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 those posts, and there were like four themes in them that I thought really became very clear to me in that interview, and, and one the. First one was the lack of transparency and the opposition to transparency that the Federal Reserve has, and how that's historically developed. Can you talk about that? Sure. So the um, the modern Federal Reserve, in its independent quote unquote independent form, was um, a, a creation of the business elite in um, 1951. There was a fight. So the, the Fed was Part of essentially part of the administration um, in the in the Great Depression and in World War, particularly in World War II, it got um, it, you know the Treasury just told the Fed you're going to buy all government debt at two percent, and we're going to constrain and basically they're going to print as much money as we need to fund the war, and you know we're going to control inflation through credit controls. We're going to say to banks you can't lend as much, um, and we're going to um, impose rationing if necessary. And what, what happened is unemployment dropped to 1%. Uh, it dropped in, dramatically. Um, and this is when 
we became a middle-class nation. Uh, and the system worked really well. And this, this part of history is, is airbrushed, uh, particularly the monetary part. But it's, it's airbrushed out of, out of our textbooks. Um, and the, the other part was there was, a, there was a, a government bank called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which just sent a bunch of money directly into the economy, into state governments, um, to railroads, to, you know, it did some disaster relief. Basically, wherever it seeded a bunch of the New Deal programs, wherever you needed capital, the RFC was there. But it was, it was an industrial policy, um, and it built the New Deal economy. Um, but it was democratic. It wasn't, it, the Federal Reserve wasn't independent. Um, it was, the, the Roosevelt literally told them what percent to charge for, you know, when they were buying and selling government bonds. Um, and then in the late 40s, the um, Wall Street colluded with sort of corporate, basically the Fed organized Wall Street and corporations to support their quote-unquote independence. And it had to do with financing of the Korean War. But the Fed basically said, we don't want um, to, to, have, uh, to control the economy by telling banks how much to lend. We would prefer to throw the economy into recession if we want to reduce inflation by managing things with unemployment. And so there was a big fight, and, um, uh, and the Fed won. And they then developed this, this, this code word called Federal Reserve Independence, in which they said, oh, well, we're, we're sacred. We, you, can't, you can't touch monetary policy. That's beyond democracy. And that set the tone for the post-war um, order. And, and we see that, that now they're the whole school of economics, and there were economists on both sides of this question back then, but mostly the school of economics, um, until the, the, the crisis, believed uh, that the Fed should be independent, that... Um, that was the essentially economics, which is basically business interests funding a set of kind of elite consensus uh, witch doctors. That 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 is more important than and more powerful than, than democracy, and um, and should be uh, more uh, power. You know, d d democratic choices. You know, you can argue about choice um, over abortions and things like that. But when it comes to the important stuff, the money, let the men in suits decide. And Ron Paul really presents a challenge to that. Um, and it's a challenge that liberals haven't answered because... Okay, let me, um, let me stop yeah. you because I was trying to hold off on the Ron Paul part of this, but let's talk about that because one of the, the, this, one of the central themes, I, I, I said I had four things I wanted you to talk about, and the second one was the tension that, the Ron, that you said the Ron Paul candidacy presents. And, and I don't want us to get distracted too much by that because what has happened is people who are upset with what you're saying, um, scream that you're a David Duke racist and aren't really and and are on board with the Ron Paul campaign. And you know, while you and while Glenn Greenwald and while everybody else who said, no, look at this, um ha have said, but we're not Ron Paul supporters. It's at the bottom of each of your posts. It's at the it's in the interview that uh, Philipowitz did. Nonetheless why does why is it such a threat? Why is what the tension the tension that Ron Paul exposes? That's what you're really writing about. Well, is what, the what, tension right? I mean, so so the the problem is so when I was working on the Fed audit, right? This is a bill to say not that that, that we're going to reimpose democratic control, citizen control of the Fed, but just that the Fed has to tell Congress which, where it's sending its trillions of dollars, 
Matt, can I ask you to repeat that? What you were working on when you were working on this with Grayson and with Ron Paul and with other members of Congress, you were working on a program to audit the Fed. Yeah, right? basically the, the Fed um, traditionally buys right. and sells treasury bonds to, to manage the economy. But during the crisis, it started to do all sorts of weird exotic things um, to manage the economy. It took a lot of weird bank debt onto its balance sheet and mortgage-backed securities and whatever. And But it wasn't telling anybody well, what so, it was so doing. Well, you, you, it, it issued bank debt. It took on mortgage-backed securities. It bought it bought instruments that it had never bought before. Right. Right? Yeah. It did things it had never done before in this right. crisis. Right. And the idea of the audit was to let the American people and the Congress and the president know what they had done. That was the idea of the audit, right? Yeah, that's right. Is that right? Can, yeah, do you, are you going to let me – do you want me to explain or, or do you want to tell the story yourself? No, because no, I want you to explain now. Thank you. Okay, so so in the management of a crisis, right, the, the, what happened – so what happened in a crisis is, is that the way that the government manages our economy is essentially it, it, it decides to – this is a very simplified way of putting it – but it decides to print more money if the economy isn't doing well um, so that people have more money can spend more money. And then if the economy is doing too well and you have inflationary pressures, it destroys money. Um, and the way it does this is, is it works through the banking system. So it basically gives banks more money to lend if things are good, and it takes away money from banks if things are bad. It does this by buying and selling bonds, but it's not really important how it does it. During the crisis, the um, banking system broke. So the transmission mechanism between the government, the elites, the Fed, and the real economy was broken because the banks – um, wouldn't lend no matter what you did. And that's what a liquidity trap is. That's what the crisis was. And so the Fed started to do lots of weird stuff. It started to buy lots of weird securities. It started to take on lots of strange um, obligations. It started to guarantee um, bank debt that it had never guaranteed before. It essentially backstopped the, this broken banking system and didn't impose any obligations on the banks that just said, we're not going to let you go under. Now, when the, when the Fed was just buying and selling treasury bonds and that transmission mechanism was working, the Fed had a plausible argument about why transparency was not necessary. They said, it doesn't really matter. We're just buying and selling treasury bonds. It's plain vanilla stuff, right? But once the transmission mechanism broke down and the Fed started – to buy and sell lots of weird stuff and started to commit us as taxpayers to lots of weird stuff, it was making very political decisions about who would get money and who wouldn't. And it lost its legitimacy as an independent body because it was making decisions that were not just technocratic monetary decisions. It was making fiscal decisions. It was making decisions about where to allocate our resources. It was picking winners and losers. And it had always sort of done this, but it was much more explicit during the crisis and after the crisis and, and now. And so the fight over the audit became a fight which the audit was whether the Fed is going to have to tell us as the public, as in my case, I was as someone in Congress, what they were doing, um, who they were lending money to, and what they were getting in return. 
and Bloomberg had FOIAed some information about it, and there were all sorts of fights over whether we would have access to this information, and the Fed said, oh, this will compromise our independence, et cetera, et cetera. But behind this fight was really a question of, and Paul Krugman is in favor of Fed independence, and most liberal, quote-unquote, liberal economists are in favor of Fed independence. Um, even though there's lots of corruption at the Fed, they still think that the Fed should not be held accountable for what it does, and they don't believe, essentially they don't believe in democracy when it comes to monetary policy, and which is now bleeding into fiscal policy. Independent because, of Congress, but not independent of the banks, right? Well, that's right. I mean, the, the structure of the Fed is is quite closely aligned with the, the banking system. And this, if you go back in history, you know, the 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 fight over the independence of the Fed was basically a fight between banks and, and democratic, um, democratically elected officials, and the banks won. Um, and so now we're revisiting that question. And the whole liberal intelligentsia has grown up around the idea that experts know what they're doing, right? That's the New Deal model is that it's, it's, there's some dem democratic input, but it's run by technocrats who kind of know what they're doing, they're managed through these elite institutions. Academic credentials mean something. I mean, think about how many people thought, oh, Obama's a constitutional law professor. Did you hear he went to, you know, Harvard or whatever? I mean, these credentials are important to liberals because liberals believe in these institutions and they believe in expertise and they believe in the cult of technocracy. And that's what the Fed represented. So when you attack this, um, this independent institution, which is allocating our resources without our input, you're attacking the cult of the technocrat, the cult of the expert. And that's what I constantly found. And that's why it's such a challenge. Because if you don't believe that our system is a meritocratic system, you're challenging one of the fundamental um, pillars of the, the New Deal era liberal state. Even though we're not okay. in a New Deal liberal era state anymore, I think that liberals still hold on to this fantasy that our experts are not corrupt. And they are. Okay. No, because this is really a couple things that came up in the Flipwitz interview, and, and, and I, I was hoping to do that later, but let's do it now. There were two things that are very clear that aren't as clear in the Naked Capitalism post as they were in that interview, and that is, first off, that you view our elected, our appointed officials in the SEC, in the Fed, as incompetent. You, you say in the interview that the SEC... It doesn't have lawyers who can win cases of uh, securities fraud. That's right. Um, so can you explain right. how that happened? Well, okay. So, so, so um, all right. Well, this. So there's a basic problem. The basic problem with the kind of, and I say liberal, and what I mean by liberal, and it's important to define this. I don't mean in any sort of kind of people who have read balls, right, or read the classics. I mean kind of the people who sort of ostensibly see themselves as on the democratic side of the aisle who are running our cultural and political and academic institutions, um, people with power who consider themselves somewhat liberal. Um, well, see, I'd call them institutional Democrats is what I would call them. I wouldn't call no, them but liberals. I'm not talking about, like, Democrats. I'm talking about – I mean, yes, I, I do mean some Democrats, but I'm talking about, like, the great Lawrence tribe the liberal, great liberal, law, you know, constitutional law professor, right, that kind of person who sees themselves as, a, a, you know, standing for one pole of the American ideological spectrum. So you may Lawrence Tribe is not Richard Posner. He's, 
he's somebody else. He's not Posner. He's someone else. Yeah, I mean, it's it, right. So, so it's sort of like you know the people who think of themselves as representing who are the heirs to this kind of liberal tradition. Um, Jeff Sachs is the kind of guy you're talking about. Uh, yeah, Jeff Sachs would be would be. I mean, he's he's more of a neoliberal. But um, but yeah, I mean those those types, the Paul Krugman's, the Jeff Sachs, the Lawrence Tribes, the Gloria Steinem's, those those types of people, the people who are you know behind Obama, um, and you know so that uh, you know the 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 Brad, Tim Geisner, you know those those types. Okay, Tim Geisner. What? Tim Geisner. I mean, Tim Tim Geisner is more of a moderate Republican. But but yeah, I mean he falls within that technocratic spectrum. Um, okay. But yeah, and like, um, yeah. And your claim is that they're not competent. The, the the people who are in the regulatory apparatus, like the SEC, are not competent to be there. Well, yeah, I mean that that was part of it. Like the point I was making, but I was let me take a step back and sort of describe what I was trying to say in that interview, like. One of the biggest challenges, so whenever you think about the Obama administration, one of what they have done, you know, poorly, which is a lot, um, it's not just the strategic decisions they've made that have been poor. Even when they want to do things that are useful, they can't do them because they actually don't know how to execute anything. So, for instance, in 2010, there was a, they wanted to do something about the economy, so they passed a bill to increase small business lending. But instead of saying, we're just going to, like, find people who can loan money to businesses, which is what FDR would have done, and we're going to do it, they said, well, we're going to design a program which is going to have all of these incentives to lend money to banks, and it's going to be cheaper capital if they lend more to businesses, and it's going to be very strange and bureaucratic, and it's like a triple bank shot. And, of course, like, after a year, they hadn't lent, had lent a dime out to anyone because they don't actually know how to do anything, and their people are kind of incompetent. And that's what you find, like, again and again and again. So the people at the SEC, um, Mary Shapiro, and then the whole regulatory apparatus, it's full of lawyers who don't actually know how to go after companies because they haven't done it in a long time, and they weren't hired to do that. They know how to check boxes, and they know how to settle cases and let banks off the hook and let companies off the hook, and that's what their skill set is. And so the problem for liberals is not only – do we want people who are going to say, let's, let's enforce the law, but we actually need to find a ton of lawyers who know how to do it or who are willing to try and lose and learn and get better at it. Like, we need a governing apparatus, you know, and we just don't have it because if the best we can do is Elena Kagan, that's pretty bad, right? We need lawyers. We need technocrats who are actually competent and who are good at stuff and who want to govern, who want to get in there and roll up their sleeves and fix the foreclosure mess. Instead of people who want to create weird bank shot programs that don't do anything. Well, who want to empower private entities to take care of this on their own rather than actually intervene directly. But, yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, because, again, the, 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 program, the program that Atrios is all, the HAMP program, I mean, what happened with that? I mean, it seems like it's a really obvious thing that what you should do is make it possible for homeowners who are underwater to get out from underwater. But that's obviously good public policy. And that's the thing that's driving me crazy is that obviously good public policy is just not doesn't seem to be on the table over and over again. And do you think right. that's a question of competence? 
I think it's both confidence and intent. Like, the foreclosure situation, I think it's just a criminal. I mean, I, I, it's just criminal. Like, there's no other way to put it. Like, what's going on there is, I mean, it's almost, um, it's just inconceivably messed up and, and, and intentionally messed up. Like, the banks and Fannie and Freddie, and yes, Fannie and Freddie are huge problems, and yes, they were partial causes of the financial crisis. Um, they created a private um, land record system they to avoid the cadaster. That's right. Um, they they, they, they replaced the cadaster with MERS. That's right. And they just decided to do it, and they didn't get the legal authority to do it. They just did it. And so, you know, they there's we don't actually have a good land record system anymore. And and then, and then to, to well, hold on, hold on. I want to, I want to step back for a second. And folks, recognize that we don't have a good land record system anymore. That's a land record system that goes back to the 16th century. It, it goes back to you know the, when when England when the when the King of England took over the United took over the colonies. That same system of transferring land was the same one. This cadastro system is hundreds of years old, and it, and it works, and it's been working for a very long time. And it was broken right. on purpose so by you, these so banks. You, you, you want to know how the, who owns what property, right? Because if and you don't know who owns what property... Go on, I'm sorry, man. If you don't know who owns what property, then you get a lot of problems, including you know the potential for social conflict. Um, so you should keep very careful land records. And real estate law is really explicit about this because there haven't been really serious problems. There was even an English civil war over the, pro over the problem, and so they created this system, and there haven't really been problems since they created it. But the housing bubble was all about avoiding rules and regulations, and one of those constraints was this, this property land record system. And so now, I mean, and then there were lots of problems with securitization in terms of documenting who owes what to whom, and that's where the falsifying documents comes in. But now, since there's no enforcement of any rules, the banks are foreclosing on people guessing that they have the right to foreclose. And in most cases, they're probably right, but we don't actually know. And we don't actually know if you're paying your mortgage to the right entity, and we don't actually know if that entity has the right to foreclose. And so you could be, we could be in a situation where millions of people are paying semi-random amounts to, invest, to trusts that are remitting semi-random amounts to investors who think they're owed mortgages, payments from mortgages that they're not, in fact, owed money from. And the, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's, it's just this catastrophic situation. And because there's no enforcement of rules, you're probably going to see, and, you know, the anecdotal evidence is overwhelming, but since there's been no investigations, we don't have systemic evidence here. But you're seeing, like, you know, kickbacks on, you know, someone will, will foreclose, and because the bank doesn't own the property, it's an investor-owned property, and the investor has no power in the relationship, a bank servicer will foreclose just because some guy wants to, like, you know, um, Give a, get a kickback from a realtor who they'll send the REO property to. And, like, this is actually happening, right? I mean, just, like, crazy stories that are just the norm because when you don't enforce the rules, when you don't enforce the law, then might does, in fact, make right, and the banks have might. The sheriffs listen to the banks, and the courts listen to the banks. They don't listen to ordinary people. And that 
that is a problem of governance, and it's a problem that the Obama administration could have fixed and has chosen not to fix because well, it's a, they, be, this is where, they believe that the banks are the legitimate actors in the economy and they don't really believe in democracy. So, well, hold that thought. But this is regulatory, we've been talking about regulatory incompetence at this point, that they've not had the resources. But now you're saying something different. Now you're saying something, well, they don't I live in they democracy. Didn't have the resources. I don't think it's a resource issue. I mean, sure, there are resource problems, but I don't think it's a resource issue. I'm sorry. They have they have fifty billion dollars and half they haven't spent. It's obviously not a resource issue, and I thank you for correcting me on that. But what you've said is they don't have anybody competent to do it. But now you're saying you're inching over to the second theme that that you've spoken to, and that is they're corrupt. That's right. And so before we do that, before we talk about the corruption part of it, I'd like to get Sherry to do the update. Of uh, what's coming up, Sherry? Are you are you with us? I'm sorry to do this so abruptly. And while you're getting ready, go ahead. Yeah, just give me one second here, and I'll have it for you. Here we go. On Sunday, Joan McCarter is here back with you, Jay. On Tuesday, Dave Johnson will be here with Barry Kendall, the executive director at Progressive Ideas Network. And then on Wednesday, we have another edition of Virtually Speaking Science. Tom Levinson will be speaking with Alan Lightman, who has written a new book, Mr. G, The Story of Creation as Told by God. And finally, next week, after A to Z, Jay's guest will be Olivier Knox. Back to you. Of, of AFP, and also Mr. G, that title, it's a lowercase g. It's about Mr. G, God, which is pretty funny on Lightman's part. Um, so Matt, I, I want to transition from the incompetence thing, and, and 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 you know when you're talking about the SEC not having lawyers that that actually know how to prosecute these cases, that you know it, it just resonated with the judge who just said, you know, we're not, I'm not, I, I'm, they broke the law. They don't get to just say they didn't break the law. Actually, the, Was that the, the judge didn't. The judge didn't say that. The judge said, I don't know if they've broken the law. I need to actually understand this before I can determine whether this is a reasonable settlement. And, and that's a competence issue, I hope. But maybe it's a corruption issue. No, I think it's a corruption issue and a competence issue. I mean, it, you, you, can't, you can't disassociate them. Um, what is it? What is Mark Twain? You know, it's like, what? Um, stupid or evil? Something like that. You know, well, I mean, that, you can never really tell. Running, I mean, that's, that, I think that it could be that what Eschaton's blog is about is about stupid or evil. Um, but the corruption part of it really is this is is really important and and you know one of the things that struck me the the last post you did the one that was after the 2006 transcript release the transcript of was that was just an extraordinary demonstration of I, I don't have any other word for it corruption I mean they know yeah, the 2006 yeah, transcript with Geithner, with Geithner, with that 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 you you posted on in late December, if I remember correctly. Right. That 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 transcript, they are laughing at people being cheated. Wait, I, I'm sorry, I don't know which which one you're talking about. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm talking about the two. I'm talking about the release of the FMO, FOMC transcript. 
of the 2006 meeting, the Times had, I think it was actually this month. I'm sorry about the Oh, name. yeah, yeah, where they were talking about, like, oh, yeah, they, they're a person giving away Lexuses. Um, yeah. They're I, I laughing yeah. about this. Right. And and they're also saying, oh, we're not worried. The housing market's fine. Right. We don't have to worry about – and that's a confidence issue, that they're – that they're saying, oh, no, it doesn't matter, we'll be fine, we don't need to take the punch bowl away in the long-standing tradition of the Fed, right? Well, right. I mean, you know, it's, it's both a confidence and a, it's a corruption issue because, you know, what was happening is there were people who were warning about the housing bubble and there were a lot of people who were warning about it. I mean, 23 states passed laws against various types of predatory lending and tricks and traps and whatnot. Um, and yet, you know, the Fed ignored them, and the way they ignored them is they kind of dismissed anybody who complained and said, hey, you guys need to pay attention to this. And so then all the people who were left are people who didn't think there was a housing bubble, and there was in, there's enormous pressure for group things. So it looks like incompetence, and in any one individual case, it could be incompetence. But, you know, it's what it is is it's systemic corruption, right, where they, they want to get a certain outcome, and then they eventually do get that outcome in terms of the way that they analyze the situation, but it's just because they've eliminated anyone who would dissent from it. Right. Now, and when you say that there were states that didn't have these problems, for example, Texas didn't have these problems because Texas had predatory lender laws. Yeah. And so it's not as if we didn't know how to do this. It's that Nevada chose not to. It's Florida chose not to. And it's hard to tell a story. Well, actually, actually, it's, it's in, in many cases, the... States actually said, we are going to pass laws. And like Georgia, for instance, in 2003 said, we're going to pass a yeah. law It's going to crack down on predatory lending. And then S&P said, if you pass this law, we won't rate um, securities that have mortgages from Georgia in there, which meant that Georgia would get no more housing finance. So Georgia can, had to you know, the law. Matt, Matt, I rem- I, Matt, I remember that really well, but can you expand on that a little bit? Because it's a yeah, really then, illustration then, of corruption. So it was there was a collusion of federal regulators and um, and private, well capitalized entities, banks, rating agencies, and whatnot to eviscerate any attempt to stop the, the predatory lending because predatory loans are the most profitable securitization products. So it happened in a number of ways. Um, when a state or locality would pass a law restricting a certain activity. If a bank regulator like the OCC was the most common one, it's the controller of the currency, by far the most corrupt. Um, regulatory agency, they would do what's called preemption. So they would say, this is a federal issue on on a national bank. You can't regulate a national bank because you're a state regulator or you're a municipality. Um, only we can do it, and we don't think the regulation is necessary. And there were court battles, and the OCC won them. So they were able to overturn the authority of states and localities to restrict predatory lending. Um, that was one tactic that was used. Another tactic was... Um, was uh, what was known as a capital strike, which was, this was um, S&P said to Georgia when they passed a predatory lending law, we simply won't rate securities that have mortgages from Georgia in them, which effectively meant that Georgia would get no housing finance. So here in Georgia, you can't get a mortgage. And so Georgia because, was forced because, to reverse that. Because the that loans rule. couldn't be securitized. They couldn't right. be put into, and, and therefore couldn't be sold on the open market, and therefore right. people wouldn't be able to get loans. And right. so the S&P essentially said, Georgia, you don't get to say what the rules are for lending. 
stretch run. Um, and, and that was a very, I mean, that was an important, that was an important moment because in 2003, that was when they were, you know, the, they were road testing predatory lending practices. And it had not yet gone as mainstream as it was to become later. Right. And, and, and actually, this gives me this is a little segue to something you said, and I can't remember if it was in a post or if it was in an interview, is how important it's been that blogs like Barry Ritholtz, like Naked Capitalism, like this whole, this whole collection of people who've been writing about stuff, about these issues, have made it possible for us to understand these things. So can you just give a shout-out to the blogs that have, been, have done this? Yeah, so what, I'll explain the process, but um, so the, the, when, I went, when I went to Congress, I was a senior policy advisor for Grayson, and what was interesting about the experience is that I got a desk my first day, and they were like, good luck, right, and that was it. And I didn't know anything about banking, um, but, but in Grayson got assigned to the Financial Services Committee, and I was, you know, I, I had been, I was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, policy. So then he gets assigned to this committee, and I don't know anything about it. And the only way you can actually learn about the banking system is from lobbyists, because there is no other, you know, how else are you going to learn about the banking system? I mean, the industry teaches you, right? So this is a really huge problem, right, because, you know, policymakers actually are learning about the industry from the industry itself. So the way I learned about, and I was like, this is a problem, because I had done a lot of anti-war work, so I knew that, you know, elites lie. Um, so I, I actually ended up learning most of what I knew about the banking system from the blogs. Um, Can I add one thing, one thing that you just sorry? The staffers too. The staffers on these committees come from the Fed. It's something that you've written about as well. Is that when you were talking to staff, fellow staffers, they came from the Fed? Yeah, and I mean a lot of the a lot of the staff from came from the, the the culture of the staff um, in the committee. Um, you know, they're from the big banks, they're from the Fed, they're from the other regulatory agencies. Um, they've all learned their craft either in traditional macro courses or in um, or from the industry. And, um, you know, that's a huge problem because they basically believe that banks are good uh, and they don't really think that elites lie. Um, and, they, you know, they, they don't really think, um, you know, they're not thinking about first-order questions. Um, what do we want a banking system for? How do we structure a banking system? These are not and they believe, significant. Yeah. And they believe so. in Fed independence, and they don't think that the Fed should be audited or controlled by political processes. That's right. I mean, there's basically a... Um, they think you're crazy if you think that the Fed should be audited. They think you're totally nuts. Um, and or at least they did in 2009. And so what happened is I learned over time um, about the financial system through naked capitalism, the big picture, uh, zero hedge, um, and, you know, a lot of Bloomberg reporters, um, and this whole kind of Simon Johnson and the Roosevelt Institute and a whole sort of dissident group of former regulators, former um, bankers, people who were kind of end users of the financial system and could teach me about it, but they weren't lying. And um, it was really interesting, this interesting process, where what would happen is we would have a committee hearing with a set of witnesses, and, you know, I would go out to this community of people that I had met at 
conferences and on blogs and various places, and I would say, hey, here's our committee hearing, and here are the witnesses. What should we ask this guy from the FDIC or this person from this banking association or whatever? And they would say, oh, cool, like I'm this former banker, and I'm frustrated with the crisis, so I started blogging, and now all of a sudden here's a staffer who wants me to put a question to this guy, and they would tell me. And then I would give this stuff to Grayson, and Grayson, who is an incredibly talented um, lawyer and a really good at cross-examining, would cross-examine these people, and then I would take that and I would put it on YouTube, and I would send it back out to the people who had given me the questions who ran these blogs and financial sites. And, they, and it was entertaining and interesting, and they would get you know, huge views on YouTube, and it would create these kind of, it would sort of merge the conversation on the financial blogs with the conversation um, on the Internet uh, from these financial experts. And it was very powerful because I had a community of people who could teach me about the financial system, and they were not corrupt, and so I didn't feel lonely, which is a big problem on Capitol Hill. And, you know, we really lonely. drive a legislative agenda. Um Around you know around certain core issues, um, and that was that was very cool, uh, and and it was an attack on the monopoly of information that the financial industry has when it comes to policymaking. Um, right. There was no alternative. One of the, one of the things you say is that these hearings are incredibly tedious. That the way in which the questions are asked, that Barney Frank, who was controlling the congressional hearings, would gavel you down after five minutes, no matter what. That this, the hearings weren't designed to elicit information from the people that were testifying. They were designed to do something else. Yeah, I mean, the, the hearings. So, uh, so one of the things about Congress, one of the reasons it's so terrible, is because the system is set up for a, for a um, you know, like a hearing, you're supposed to like ask people who know stuff about a problem what to do, and then you're supposed to write a law based on what they say, right? That's the premise of a legislative process. And you do, you divide things into committees because not everyone can be involved in every single thing. Like you as a division of labor, you just have too much to deal with. So the problem with these hearings now is that that's not what they do anymore. Right, you have everybody wants their five minutes, and they want their five minutes so that they can do what the lobbyists want them to do, which is ask a certain set of questions, or they want a news clip for back home, or they don't even know what they want, and they don't know anything about the topic, and so it's just it's just kind of a disconnected, irrelevant group of people asking a uh, a group of, of experts about something that's probably already pre-negotiated, and. Right. It's it doesn't make any sense. And what we did is we sort of gave some life to these hearings and actually used them for the purposes for which they were intended, which is actually investigating a little bit, actually you know coming up with interesting questions and finding stuff out that you, we didn't already know, um, and then pointing to fundamental problems with the law that you could correct. Leaving sometimes witnesses speechless, and well, yeah. witnesses. Yeah. Usually weren't speechless, speechless. Um, so, so did it work? I mean, you did get the audit through, right? We did get a fed um, audit out of that. We did, we did. Um, we ended up getting it through on, um, uh, let's see, how did it work? Yeah, we got it through the House and then we got it through the Senate. It was really a shocker, actually. 
because um, you attached it, we attached it to the Dodd-Frank bill, and basically bills don't pass Congress anymore independently. They have to be attached to must-pass legislation, must like spend, yeah, spending bills or things that are clear presidential priorities like health care, financial reform, or stuff like that. So um, we were we were in this fight over the Fed audit, and, you know, it was the Ron Paul who had all the Republicans on board, and then we were the left flank in the House. And Grayson, you know, just spent a lot of time explaining, you know, to members, like, what this was about and persuading them and showing them information about the Fed, showing that the Fed was actually not this competent, you know, group of supermen that everybody thought they were. And, um, you know, I was running, a, a, like, a mini PR campaign to, you know, show the show the case why this was why it was good legislation why we should audit the Fed why it wouldn't be uh, why would the sky wouldn't fall I mean you know delegitimizing the arguments that the Fed put forward did staffers respond to the YouTube presentations I mean did that work was your communicating with staffers in this campaign um yeah eventually it did I mean not the ones on the committee so much the staffers on the committee were really against um, Fed transparency. I mean, they were very much. I mean, the staffers were by far the most establishment group um, because they they were like, you know, if you're a member, you have some discretion and freedom because you won an election. But if you're a staffer, you know, then you really want to be conformist. So they were, uh, they, yes. were they were by far the most conformist elements on the financial services committee. But you know, I, I wouldn't say that's true all over Congress. There were plenty of people who like were interested in finance who, you know, they had the financial portfolio for their member, and their member wasn't on the committee, and they cared about it, and they, you know, definitely there was there were some who watched it. But generally speaking, I mean, the culture of staffing on the Hill is, you know, it, it does definitely tend towards conformism. Um, and, uh, you know, and not there's not that much, um, you know, it, it, there's not a lot of incentive for creativity because um, if you do take on powerful interests, you know, your boss is going to, you know, not get fundraising help, and that's going to be. And really you're not going to have a good job prospect when you're done being a staffer. Well, that, I mean, that's that's true as well. Um, you know, you 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 your career will be hurt, and you will get in trouble with your boss. You um, know, I had the weirdest experience today. There was a a Politico box um, on my way to the subway. I, I had never seen Politico in hard copy, but boy, oh boy, does it really crystallize. What the village is like, just having that, you know, 12 or 16-page piece of newspaper just alternating. It just—it's it, unbelievable. Did you look at the ads? Uh yeah, no, that's what I started to say. I, and I don't have it—I don't have it in my hand, but the ads were, you know, just full-page ads from lobbying, from from the Chamber of Commerce, from a uh, labor organization, from. Uh, pro pro SOPA from pro there was an anti SOPA ad, but it was it was entirely about delivering advertising to players, and I'm astounded. I didn't know there were players in my neighborhood, but there's no other reason to have that there for free. Handing where, that paper. where were you? Where where would you pick it up? Lexington between 87 and 88 right. in the city. Right. So yeah, yeah no, that's zip code. Bit, yeah. That's a big that's it's a big money zip code. That's true. But I'm transitioning. It also shows wanna... just how much more political. Like there was a there was a separation between Wall Street and and DC that has now collapsed. 
because a lot of the yeah. a lot of the money culture is now about guessing. The speculation is about guessing what Washington is going to do. Right, and it is true. That's two blocks away from the express subway stop that goes to Wall Street. I mean, that's the the express subway stop that's four stops away from Wall Street. And yes, folks, it is really the case that people who make you know a million dollars a year ride the subway because it's the fastest way to get downtown. And uh, it, it's really true. Um, but Matt, I, I wanted to use that as a transition for the more difficult part of what you've been writing. And Stuart, do you have something? Sorry, we've got, just breaking in for a second, we've got Lambert Strether on the line in case you didn't know, just just to put that in there. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, if not, then then not. we'll bring Lambert in. And um, but Lambert, we'd like you to be brief because I want to talk about um, the other stuff Matt, Matt's been writing about. Lambert, go ahead. Um, I just, yeah, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, well, I wanted to say first that I've really enjoyed Matt's work at Naked Capitalism, and it's exciting to see it. Um, and if this throws you off the track, um, uh, by all means, like, dispense with it and go on. I wanted to pose um, as a, I wanted to throw something out that Ian Welsh said that, you know, and this is electoral politics, so maybe it's off topic, but what Ian said was, um, the left has to defeat Obama and de- be seen to defeat Obama, and the implication is that if they can't, there is no left. And I wonder if you'd like to comment on that, and to be as brief as possible, I'll hang up. <laughs> Thank you, Lambert. Beautiful. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Matt? Um, I mean, you know, I... I can't get into kind of electoral questions because of the sort of the C3 status of the Roosevelt Institute. Um, So I won't talk about that. Um, But I do, I I will say, and I mean, there's no way, you know, there's, there isn't going to be a primary. There wasn't a primary. um, And there, that isn't, that just isn't going to happen. Um, the, 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 The liberal kind of elites and the democratic elites have, you know, decided that um, that they're going to back Obama because they agree with him. Um, so, you know, Matt, the, the let, let, me, there's let, a left, let me inter- I mean, let me interrupt because this really does segue into what I wanted to talk about at, at the end of the discussion. Anyway, but, okay, no, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say like basically, there is a kind of nascent sense. That um, this is this is a hard this is a hard question, and I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about it. So there is a basic problem of authoritarianism in American culture, which is increasingly important. Um, we have increasing amounts of privatized uh, government services, violence used by the state to enforce creditor claims, direct governance by creditors. Um, you know, and 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 this is it happened under Bush, it happened under Clinton. It's happening now under Obama, and there has to be some sort of break. Um, they, a political movement has to disassociate itself with this, um, with this political system and with the, the leaders in it. And Obama is an important uh, part of the neoliberal consensus. He is an important actor, and the fact that there has been no opposition to him within the Democratic Party is a real indictment of the Democratic Party and is an indication that the Democratic Party um, leadership is willing to, to, to basically go along with authoritarianism. And I, and I think that that's, that that's just kind of like, that's just kind of true. 
and that there was a debate from 2004 to maybe 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 2002 to 2006 or 7 when there was this question about whether we were going to go in an authoritarian direction and that that debate has been answered um, and that question has been resolved and and Obama resolved it by saying yes we are going to go in this authoritarian direction and uh, and that that question is it, it, it's closed um, and hopefully it will open up again at some point but that space is closed um, now that and it really, really is it's a, really tragic and that really is a transition to what you're talking about when you talk about the tension that liberals face when they want to see a strong federal finance system controlled by a central government that is used to fund both wars and used to fund social programs. And that this, well, let me stop right there. How does that tie back, that authoritarian theme that we've seen in this millennium, tie back to your writing about the important role that central government, federal bank finance works? Well, I mean, the New Deal, the New Deal system, by the way, Lambert, if you, um, if I answered the, if I didn't answer the question, call back. Um, but um, the, the New Deal um, system and actually the Civil War and World War One, they were, they were similar in that they were about the creation of a large administrative structure that could dedicate national resources to a certain end goal. In the case of the Civil War, it was the defeat of the Confederacy and the creation of a national state. In the case of World War One, it was the participation of the United States in World War One and the um, and the, the creation of a kind of propaganda large administrative state. And in World War and the New Deal, and then in World War Two, it was the creation of a, um, a dramatic federal intervention in the national economy and the the sort of spreading of um, of a cheap oil Based middle class um, economy and the sort of erection of, a, of an American empire, um, and in in these three cases, you had a centralized funding mechanism. In the case of the Civil War, with the OCC for the uh, national banks, that's when they created. Uh, actually, the dollar was created in during the Civil War, and then World War One and World War Two, it was the, the, the creation of the Federal Reserve uh, and the use of the Federal Reserve to finance. Um, the social safety net. I mean, the thing is, is that what, what, I, what you were saying is right, which is that the same tools and financing system that you can use to set up a war, a mass applied industrial warfare, you can also use to set up mass applied industrial social safety net and spread prosperity in suburbs everywhere. Um, the, net, the highway system was in original, you know, was um, it was a defense so project. Yeah, well, it was, it, was, it was both useful for, for the oil industry and it was useful for the middle class and we had a terrible road system, but it was also useful, useful for moving military hardware around the country. And there's a reason that, like, you know, the, uh, a lot of our, of our um, initial social programs, like the VA, you know, health care and, and housing and education was all dedicated yeah, to veterans, right? I mean, it, this is, it is, is intrinsic. The social safety net was tied into... Uh, tied into war fighting, and um, we're in a uh, position right now where the social safety net has been, you know, fraying, 
the private safety net in the form of pensions and private health care, that's, that's going away. Um, and the, uh, you know, Medicare and Social Security are under attack, and, you know, it's likely that they'll be cut substantially or even, you know, eliminated. By a Democratic and, um, administration, just by the way. A Democrat or a Republican, either one. They both believe in it. Um, in getting rid of it. So, um, uh, the, the, but the, the, the fundamental problem is that, that they, that this kind of federal militarized structure, the problem for liberals, I shouldn't say the problem, but the problem for liberals is that this federal technocratic New Deal era system has, um, you know, the, the corporate labor alliance that undergirded it, uh, labor has been tossed to the side and the social spending that mediated conflict um, has now been replaced by more um, uh, policing and authoritarian structures. And yet liberal elites don't notice this. And they think that as long as you can just, you know, turn those machines back on, um, federalize power and, and have competent people run it, or so they perceive the, you know, our technocrats as opposed to their technocrats, then it will all be okay. But it won't be okay. Because the logic behind the New Deal system doesn't exist anymore. And yet we're stuck with this increasingly authoritarian system that once was, you know, was once used to run the New Deal and is now, you know, used to run the prison state. I mean, that's actually was something that Mike Conzel said, which I really thought was a brilliant observation, where he said, you know, the largest public housing program in the country is the prison system. Um, and that's what we're trying to, and that's true. We, we've got three minutes live, and we'll keep going for a little bit, if you don't mind, John Stewart style. But please go on. Well, that, I mean, that, that's what I don't. I, well, I mean, it really struck me as I was I was in the subway today, and I saw a sign that said, you know, crimes down thirty five percent in New York um, in the last ten years, but incarceration is not down. Anything, it's up actually. How can that be? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, that, I mean, they're putting they're putting more people in a number of ways. But as long as you're putting more people in the cages, incarceration goes up. Um, right, but another exactly. thing about crime is that is that crime itself, you know, how do you like, you know, let's say you were to go to you know Harvard Yard and and put a lot of police in there and have them search, you know, a lot of people's rooms. All of a sudden, crime rates in Harvard Yard would go up a lot because right, right, right. Crime, that's, that's a, right? But right. If not, you put more you know, in, or if, if you want to, if you want to get rid of all crime, just get rid of all criminal laws. I mean, the point is that, that somebody smoking weed is is a criminal, right? But but there are only and then they would measure in the crime stats if somebody, you know, catches them and arrests them. So that but the whole notion that like crime goes up or down, it, it's a, actually it's just quite dicey, and its relationship to incarceration rates. Um, is also, you know, we don't we don't necessarily know that much about it, but I'm really really sorry for that distraction. Um, you're, you're, can we just take a minute sure. to just wrap up what you'd like to say for the last minute, and then go on for just maybe five minutes more on on the podcast? Can you just close with what you were saying about um, the authoritarian nature of government in our state right now? Yeah, I mean, it's we basically. You know, we basically have to figure out how do we how do we structure a um, how do we structure a a, a, pol a progressive political economy. 
for the you know the next hundred years? How do we have some sort of social contract? I mean, the, the New Deal model was to spread power and wealth through the housing system, and you know that's clearly like on its last legs. So how do we do it? How do we give people a stake in our society? And how do we make it stable? Because if you don't do that, then you're going to have increasing social conflict and increasing policing authority and increasing clashes. And that's what you see in Greece. It's what you saw in Egypt. It's what you see in, in Europe. And, it, and you're seeing it sort of here somewhat, although it's not here as much as it probably will be. Um, and that's kind of our fundamental intellectual challenge. And we don't actually know the answer to it. And what, what's, what's happening right now in the liberal space with the kind of Ron Paul is a racist, which is, you know, obviously he, white supremacy is an important part of his appeal. Um, and you shouldn't overlook that. And that's why I'm not a Ron Paul supporter. But one of the reasons. But the, but the challenge for us is to answer that question. Of, of how do we create a stable political economy that brought, you know, that distributes prosperity broadly, understanding that we have a corrupt elite, understanding that our technocrats and our economists are corrupt, and that we don't have cheap oil anymore, but that we have these amazing technological tools which can be used to spread knowledge and wealth around the world and around our country, but can also be used to track everywhere that you go and everything that you do. Um, and so these are really interesting, penetrating questions. But the energy right now is dedicated to suppressing the idea that we can even answer these questions or that these questions even exist. It's just, I, let's go back to the 80s or to the 60s or to the 30s or whatever you know, people are more comfortable with. I'd like you to do, expand on one more thing, and we're, we're just in the podcast now. But I'd like you to expand on one more thing because it's kind of a throwaway that you've used in both your, your posts and, and just now is cheap oil. Right. Um, when you say that, you mean a whole bunch of things, I think. Can you say what you mean when you say that? Um, yeah, sure. Um, it's, uh, you know, the oil industry is the most um, profitable industry in human history. And the um, the basis of our of our economy is is oil. It's how we move goods. It's how we move ourselves. It and it goes. It's the ingredient that actually goes into a lot of stuff. Like a lot of our food is grown with industrial agriculture. Um, plastic is oil. You know, it, it is it is a fundamental building block of American society and of and of our global economy. Um, and the problem and the politics that oil creates is decentralized. Um, so the, the the problem that the oil industry had in the 30s to the 70s is that it had too much oil and the price was too low. And so anything that created more demand was good for the oil industry. So they wanted a middle-class society. They wanted people to get wealthier because, hey, if you know people get wealthier, they buy more oil, right? And we have too much oil. Um, they didn't like the oil industry and the banking system fought because the banking system was making people poorer. And that was a problem for the oil industry. Um, but from the 70s onward, the environmental uh, movement began to, the two things happened. We hit peak um, oil domestically so that you know, oil companies had to go abroad um, and we became dependent on Middle East oil. 
And so there was this strong incentive to build a much stronger military. Um, but also, you know, the environmental industry started saying, or environmental movement started saying, we want to impose the costs of pollution onto the oil industry itself. And the oil industry, which had been big funders of the Democrats, like, you know, LBJ and JFK and FDR got a lot of funding from the oil industry, the Rockefeller interests. Um, that money and the power moved over to the right side of the Democratic Party and then to the, ultimately the Republican Party, which is why you see the Koch brothers, that that's oil money, right? And they're, you know, they're major political funders and have been since the, really since the 70s. But a lot of a lot of the money in the Republican Party is oil money, and that used to be Democratic money, and that used to be Democratic power, and that's the that was the money behind the New Deal. It was the money behind the infrastructure spending on highways and airports and things like that. Um, and now that power is, in fact, um, you know, behind a very you know a different political order in which oil is scarce and prosperity for the middle class doesn't matter. Um, you know, and it's just, it's just a very, and that's a, that's a, that's a really, I don't know how to, I don't know how to solve that. I don't, I don't, I don't know of an industrial coalition that can, that can compete with the oil industry in terms of the amount of power and money and, and influence that it has. Gotcha. It's not the banks, obviously, because that is who are funding the Democrats now, and uh, it's not them. Well, Matt, I don't want to keep you forever. I have, I have one question. Could I, could I keep? Could I keep him for one question, or do we not have time, Jay? Oh, I have time. If Matt's willing to answer another question, that'd be great. Sure. Just one, Matt, or you can go with that. Um, yeah. So, so listening to this and and having it uh, be explained much more clearly and explicitly, uh, which was great. Um, it occurs to me that essentially you're arguing some some very fundamental premises of both the right and the center. The right basically says that what we have on our hands is Tammany Hall all over again. And the center says basically that we have, uh, uh, you know, a corrupt and incompetent government as well. And so we need to have a partnership with government that, that takes some whatever good government types are left and then try to outsource whatever government functions there are to private, you know, uh, to, to private expertise and private um, actors. And so what 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 you've laid out basically accepts the, those those basic premises that, that the state is just fucked. The state is corrupt and incompetent and uh, undemocratic in much the way it was, say, a century ago. And so um, the liberal idea, the movement liberal idea, at least out in the country, of trying to address that by reinstituting a, a new deal is, is, is impossible. Like the idea, for example, of extending Medicare to all would undoubtedly fail, given that Medi Medicare's pricing system is, uh, you know, a, a, an example of, of the kind of regulatory capture and incompetence you're talking about. And that's why prices keep going up by 6% every year. Um, is that a fair characterization of, of what, you're, what you're saying? Um, I, I wouldn't go that far, but what I would say is that there is a very serious challenge right now in in making an argument for expanded federal power because what we've what we've learned at least what I've learned in the housing finance system and with you know the war fighting system and 
is that the federal government and, and the government itself and through privatization, all sorts of other things, um, has been crippled in its capacity to, to govern effectively in the public interest. And we have not dealt with that on an intellectual level. Like we have, we don't understand how to run a government that works. And so when Obama comes and takes over, he runs a government that doesn't work. I mean, HAMP is a disaster, and HAMP is a government program. And people think, well, Obama did a great job or they did a bad job, but, but you know, they're really arguing about whether he's good on TV or not. If you actually look at where the government touched people's lives from 2009 to 2010, one of the major places it touched people's lives was through the foreclosure and mortgage situation, and it was a disaster. And we have to grapple with that problem. Now, Social Security works really well. Medicare works much better than the private insurance industry, although the VA is much better than Medicare. Um, but we have to, we have to like, grapple with the fact that most of the programs that have been implemented, like S-CHIP is a, is a privatized, essentially it's a privatized service, or that when you you know you try when when you when they did hamp it was a disaster and and a lot of the programs that are implemented don't work and we haven't figured out how do you govern how do you have liberal government how do you deal how do you implement um, you know reforms on derivatives market when the SEC is full of of people who can't actually execute on that and that's that's a you know it's an intellectual challenge like and it, and it's and I don't think that we necessarily have the answers. So I, I think it's pretty clear that we need a competent and effective federal government that, you know, that enforces rules, enforces laws. But what I see happening is a, a Justice Department that, whose job it is is to protect banks. And then I see a bunch of people in, in say, at the Center for American Progress arguing for various types of, of regulation um, for the next Fannie or Freddie without addressing the fact that banks can commit crimes at will. And that's, that's because they, they haven't grappled with the fundamental problem, the fundamental intellectual challenge of our day and age, which is that all of our institutions are broken. Banks can literally take money away from customers, bet it, lose it, and suffer no consequences. Right. Or bank-like institutions can do that. Well, that's what you saw with um, with Corzine. Yeah, that's and exactly that's what I was referring to. And it just I just saw a post on Atrios that said, uh, "Oh, and by the way, the futures regulators say, well, it happened again." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I Corzine is a huge bundler for Obama, right? This is, I mean, I worked for Corzine, right? I mean, this is a very serious problem, right? Like, this is a major scandal, like. Corzine is an important political actor. Everyone in the Demo in the Senate, you know, in the Democrats in the Senate knows Corzine, or most of them do. And he's a huge bundler for Obama. How in the world can this guy represent the Democratic Party and the Democrats are completely okay with this? It's crazy. It's crazy to me. I mean, it's totally nuts. Um, I mean, I'm I was horrified when I found out that that Corzine did this. Um, I was embarrassed. I was upset. You know, I felt. I worked for this guy. I had trusted him. I thought that this guy, you know, was was doing things for the right reasons. And I learned that he was just, you know, just a, like the, 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 you know, a criminal like the rest of them. And that, I mean, that's, that's just that's horrible. 
Um, and there's no other way to characterize what he did. No, it's totally criminal. I mean, obviously. I, well, I mean, look, I mean, allegedly. Okay, so let me put allegedly in there, right? But, you know, th- there's going to be no real investigation into that. And it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's totally crazy that this is accepted. I mean, Obama, I mean, you know, Lambert asked a fundamental question, which is, you know, should the left defeat Obama? And the left doesn't have any power to do that because the left, all of its intellectuals are in thrall to, you know, to Obama and to this whole, you know, kind of silly argument about why Democrats need to be in charge. Um, really, really, we face, you know, this, this kind of, the, the, the rule of law, the questions of what is criminal, it's a very nihilistic moment of history that we're in. I mean, it, it might it sort of maybe we're in 1912 or 1913 or something like that. It's a, it's a very, very scary time when... when Except our anarchists are, are pussies. What did you say? In our government... Except our anarchists are pussies, and we don't have, and the government has drones. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I mean, look, people at Occupy, and, and those, I mean, they're willing to, to get arrested and get beaten up by cops, and, and that's, you know, that's a scary, that's a scary thing to do. Um, I know that, and I'm not trying to, I'm just saying that we're not shooting, I mean, they shot McKinley, they shot Garfield. <laughs> I mean, there were people who were very upset at that time, and they were taking very direct action. Uh, yeah, I mean, like there was, I, I, like I, I can't. I mean, there there were there was an assassination attempt on on Reagan, um, and I, I'm I'm sure there have been assassination plots and whatnot. Uh, you know, so like, I don't think that we, I don't think that our problem is that we lack violence. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think the 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 problem is like, there is a failure of moral courage. It's not because there isn't violence. The failure of moral courage is is the you know, un, you know, huge number of people who are com- completely unwilling to hold to their principles, um, you know, and are, and are completely unwilling to overlook um, the Obama administration's decision to murder, um, you know, Pakistani civilians with drone strikes, um, you know, just because the people in Pakistan are far away and don't look like them. Um, yeah. It's it's appalling to me. I mean, it's just it's just beyond it's just beyond appalling. And and you know, karma karma is going to come back to you, especially when you know you don't win your wars anymore. Yeah. No, I think that's a much more thoughtful and uh, and appropriate comment than mine. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate your coming by, and I appreciate your hanging for this extra extra few minutes. Hey, and, thanks for uh, letting me struggle to get these answers out. It's, it's fun to fun to really talk about this stuff. Well, I really and I'm and I'm glad we didn't get caught up in the Ron Paul sideshow because I think the issues you're raising is it, a little distraction because it gives them something to talk about and and run from the issues. So I'm glad we were able to yeah, stay I mean, focused look, on the tension you're talking about. Ron Paul, you know, look. Ron Paul believes what Ron Paul believes, and he isn't a liberal. He's very conservative, and and he has very sort of there's certain very scary parts of how he thinks about the world. But you know, he has intellectual integrity around what he thinks, and his staff, I mean, they are anti-war. They really are, and they're anti, you know, and they they are into auditing the Fed, and they're anti-Fed, and they're clear about that. You know, there's no games with them, and you you know you respect that. And I I don't. So there's, there's, Ron Paul may believe a lot of crazy stuff, right? 
I believe that Steny Hoyer believes a lot of crazy stuff. You know, this whole notion that, that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, which a lot of people bought into, is crazy. That's a conspiracy theory. And that's just as, to me, that's just as crazy as, like, the stuff that Ron Paul thinks. So it's like, you know, pick your conspiracy theory. Right? Well, but, and crazy versus evil. I mean, you know, I think what Chuck Schumer is doing is in many ways evil. So, and he well, knows I what mean, he's doing. Look, Right, and I, I don't necessarily think I'm not. I mean, look, the libertarians, the Mises, and the, the Koch brothers, and those libertarians, like they're certainly not. You know, they're not like crazy, right? I mean, they they want what they want, and what they want is some very scary stuff. But the thing is, is what what you know Schumer wants, or what any of these warmongers on the Democrats want, Obama wants. That's also very scary stuff, and I don't understand why you have to say, well, that's better because it's killing people that we don't have to look at. Uh, and you don't look like us. That that's that's somehow less crazy than the the other stuff. I mean, right. I, I don't know. It's just it's, it seems to me that that like what Ron Paul is doing is he's holding up a mirror and saying, I am I am actually going to be more aggressive about protecting dissent in the form of Bradley Manning, and I'm going to be aggressive against the war on drugs, and I'm going to put questions of torture and due process and American empire on the table, and and some questions of financial corruption on the table in a way that neither party is willing to do. And what is happening is liberals who ostensibly, they, they sort of take pride in the fact that they think about these things and they're like, oh, well, I'm a really, you know, secretly I'm anti-war and I, I, you know, I don't believe in the war on drugs. But when actually confronted with somebody who puts these things on the table, they can't take it. They actually can't take it. No, they can't take it. It creates cognitive dissonance and then they lash out and say, yeah. you're David Duke. And uh, it's, you're not uh, Yeah. Yeah, and um, I have to say, you know, this, I, I just, I, I feel like Ron Paul, you may not like Ron Paul, you may not like his ideas, but Ron Paul is not shooting drones and killing innocent Pakistani civilians. Um, he just isn't doing it, and he, and, and he's and, appalled and, by and, it. And, and people in the Bush administration and in the Obama administration are, and they need to be held accountable for that. And let's not even get into the foreclosure situation and this absurd argument that, well, you know, I'm willing to tolerate some problems with foreign policy because the middle class is too important. I mean, that is so insane to be like Obama has helped the middle class. It's just, I mean, it's it's just, it's like one a lie after lie after lie. Um, anyway, not to say Romney's going to be good for the middle class. Like, he'll probably be, you know, uh, arguably worse, maybe better, Certainly not good. It, it, things will get worse. Yeah, there's the there's, there's or no Obama. way to know. There's no way to know. I mean, Bush. No, right. And, 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 and a lot of ways, it's it's not a question of what he would do. It's kind of what a question of what the country will allow him to do. You know, the country or what the country will allow. Like the the country constrained Bush in some ways, so that he couldn't you know launch things he wanted to do like cutting Social Security. You know, whereas Obama was able to cut the payroll tax because he's he's a Democrat. And, um, you know, he's he's ostensibly liberal, and there's consensus. You know, he can control a lot of the liberal infrastructure. Um, but he was able to just, you know, dis disassemble Roosevelt's legacy pretty pretty easily. Yeah, when I had DeLong on, I, we speculated whether McCain could have been as brutal as Obama has been. And he might not have been able to. The country might not have given him that leeway, because at least progressive would have been opposed to things like cutting the payroll tax. I don't know. But, Matt, we've kept you way longer than we said we would, so I uh, really appreciate your taking the time. Hey, thanks a lot, Ben. Talk to you later. Thank you so much.
Bye. Stuart, can you hang for a minute or two? No problem. Uh, i got to run away. I'll be right back. So who's on the line here? Okay, I'm on the line. Avedon's probably on the line. Uh, I can hear Avedon now. Oh, that's a shame. I thought my mic was muted. (laughs) (laughs) Avedon, you look at the little blog talk radio icon, set of icons, and the one two to the left of the telephone icon is a little mic which has a line through it. And when you are muted, that is red. Oh, I can do that. I see. Do it from there, and that's where you want to mute from when you're doing anything. Ah, okay. Okay, because cool. it, really, it really mutes everything. Good. Yeah, sure. I've been trying to find someplace to do a, you know, a cough button. Right, exactly. <clears throat> uh, Stuart, I... I'm working on the F on the Fire Dog Lake Coast, and when I looked at next Thursday's uh, show, Jay only put up Olivier Knox and didn't do what he usually does, which is to put A to Z for the first hour and then the interview the second hour. So has something yeah. changed that I don't know about? No, 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 no. I just didn't do it right. Okay. Then I'll fix it. Thank you. Okay. Holy shit, Jay. What? Wasn't that awesome? I mean, well, awesome. I suppose the word could be awesome, yeah. Um, but I was right. That's it. That is what he's getting at. That's exactly what he's getting at. And it's the thing that I was theorizing about, Jay. What the fuck, man? Hold on. I want to put you into the... Uh, I want to get you off the air. Okay, what did I miss? I think Jay just eliminated us. Oh, let's get off the air, too. Okay, wait. We'll get there. We missed part of it because you guys went into screening before we did. Just Abaddon and me, Jay.
Edelman is connected with Netroots Radio, and he had a conversation. He approached you a while ago about some kind of collaboration having to do with Daily Kos, and he says that he and Stewart had a conversation. Ah, okay. <laughs> Thank you. So, okay. You and I can. Go ahead. We'll talk on the weekend. Yeah, and, make, and Jay, just you have. Wait, wait, wait. Jay, there's no in, there's no Bach intro to Stover, so you'll add that in when you separate the two, right? Okay. All right. I'll talk to you on the weekend.
Stuart, hold. Stuart, don't hang up. D don't, don't hang up, Stuart. I want to see if you stay on when Jay drops. No, no, I want to find out. Drop. Please, I want to see whether it works or not. Okay. And Stuart, if you go away, I'll conference you in. Yes. And then Stuart will tell us if we still have him. So Stuart, do we have you? No, we don't. Abaddon, do I have you? Okay, then I'm going to hang up and recall, okay? Okay. <laughs>